Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. My wife has this missing listening to her going down the crane because she's such a little cutie. I've gone through at the home of representative that are driving that to the hall, so yeah. they can't get the answers. How are the people going to get the answers? They know how hard I work, and to get nothing at the end of it is very, very hard. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion and we're going to honour that promise today. Um, if you have any questions or need any advice for you or for your school-going student who's facing exams in five weeks, stick around. We'll have the answers or as many answers we can get for you a bit later on this morning. Also, if you've ever walked or thought about walking, the Camino. I'll be talking to someone who did it for the strangest reason I've ever heard. I'm perfectly lovely reason, but certainly the first time I've ever heard anybody walk in the Camino for this particular reason. That is all to come. Boys, start with driving, not walking at all. I mentioned this on the show yesterday. It was in the newspapers and got developed a little bit more during the day yesterday where you have the European Commission suggesting now that... Children would be allowed to drive at the age of 16. Teenagers at the age of 16 could get their first driving license and drive their first car. Once that car was limited to a speed of 45 kilometers an hour. Now, 45 kilometers an hour is just under 30 miles an hour in or around, give or take. Shaken, it doesn't look much different. So say 30 miles an hour in or around. 28, 29, 30 miles an hour. So your 16-year-old son or daughter would be allowed to drive the car once the speed didn't go over 30 miles an hour. And the EU is saying this would be a great way to revise the access that young people have to driving. The European Transport Safety Council has said, "Uh uh-uh, lads, no, 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 no. Not doing that, not dangerous. You can't do that. That's dangerous. Here at home... The Road Transport Authority is also against it, saying that it 
would lead to a risk of more accidents and more danger on the roads and, and all of that. We need to keep things as they are. I'll catch up with driving instructors later in the programme, but uh, from a political point of view, one of the first voices raised, you'd expect it to come from rural Ireland, because in rural Ireland, you do have the situation where... Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael Healy, Ray, I can quite legally drive a tractor at 16. Good morning. Good morning, yes, uh, PJ, and to your listeners. Um, yes, of course, you can drive a tractor legally at 16. And I would have to say, the way I'd word this whole discussion is, it definitely deserves and warrants having a discussion, uh, a general discussion, like your good self and your listeners. And it, I'd be extremely interested to know for instance, if you were to have a poll today uh, between yourself, your radio station and your listeners mm. of what do people think? And I've no monopoly on being right about anything, but like every person in the country, I'm entitled to an opinion. And my opinion is we want to entrust our young people. I believe that if you give people responsibility, OK, some people might react badly and misuse or mistreat that responsibility, but other people will uh, will stand up to it and it'll make them better people. Mm. Now, I, I know in my own life, my own children, to be honest with you, every one of them were driving at a very, very young age. How did driving. you drive yourself, Michael? What age did someone sit you behind a wheel and say, stay between the ditches? Because that's how uh, it was done uh, back then. Yes, it was. I bought my first car, KTI uh, 427, uh, a Mark 1 for this car. I bought it for £45 and it was going perfect. But what age were you? I was 11. I go away, Michael. I know, God, no. And I bought it after the late John Lyon, a very kind, good neighbour of mine. And I had it above in the farm and I, I was driving it at 11. Yes, I was. On the public road? Ah, no, no, no. Not on the public road. On our own roads above the farm. I see, I see. Okay. And so I when did, what age did you mine, go on the public a road? A daughter of mine had her own car when she was 12. Right. And, and like, you know, these people, you, you become a better driver. The younger you, you start driving. I really believe that whenever a young person leaves uh, school, secondary school, I believe that one thing they should have inside in their back pocket leaving that school is a full driver's license and a full understanding of the safety of the, the using the road, using a, a car, and how to be courteous and... and, and a good head about them when it comes to driving, because driving is one of the main essential things in life that a person is going to do. And I can't understand why we don't have it in the curriculum. I have looked for this for many, many years. Well, does that, uh, I know, Michael, to be fair, I mean, I, and I, I like your idea that you would learn the basics in, in school. But I'd also put to you that the curriculum is already bursting at the seams as it is. You can't put any more into it. Every person that has argued against me on this over the last couple of days has used that point. When I keep saying about the education and they say, look, you know, we're overburdened as as it is. And I I respect that and I appreciate it. But, you know, a very smart man yesterday, because he made the statement and I agreed with it. uh, I drew down about, for example, sex education. We have no problem in the world and we seem to have plenty of time to teach uh, young boys and girls about boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And Pat Kinney on his programme yesterday said to me, yes, Michael, he said, so your point is we're teaching them what they should be doing in the back seat, mm-hmm. but we're not teaching them what we sh- they should be doing in the front seat. Mm-hmm. And you know, isn't there a lot to be said in that? We have time for everything else, but we don't have time for one of life's, life's basic skills, mm-hmm. and that is how to be a good person on the road. Every school, as far as I'm concerned, should have a model car. 
and they should be introduced to the workings of that car. The simplest things in the world, how to change a wheel, how to check a car for oil and water, all of these things, and then obviously the rules of the road. And during their time in school, especially if you could drive legally from 16 on, they would be able to apply for, get secure, and, and make sure that by the time they do their leaving set, they'd have a full driver's licence. And I think that would be a great way to equip our young people. Would you, would you limit the car to 30 miles an hour? Uh, absolutely no problem. Any restrictions like that to make it different and to make people safer, of course. It, I, I don't know what I compare that to. I compare that to the Honda 50. I've, I've had a Honda 50 all of my life, and to this day I have a Honda 50. But I don't think I ever in my life went beyond 25 or 30 miles an hour on a Honda 50. You still fall so, apart if you do. Yes, well, like it's like it's like a fast bicycle, right? Whereas I'd be terrified of what we'd call a proper big motorbike because the idea of falling off doing 50 or 60 or mother of God, 80 miles an hour, wouldn't that be life-changing, right? But whereas falling off at 20 miles an hour unless it were an awful hard to You'd, you'd come away with cuts and scrapes and that it is. So when a thing is limited and when it can only go so fast, obviously it reduces the the the, the, the results of if there was an accident. Yeah. But but I think that rather than, you know, cocooning children and saying, well, now, until you're older, you can't sit behind the wheel of a car. And in other words, wrapping them up in cotton wool, I think that's a lot of nonsense. But I very much respect... But Michael, the, the, on that, on that very point... On that very point, the European Transport Safety Council, by its very name, I would suggest that they know a bit more about health and safety than you or I. And, and they suggest that at the age of 16, you're, you're not ready. You, your anticipation skills, your reactions to road hazard, because you don't have experience. 16, you're just not ready for the public road. That's their belief. Well, and look, aren't they entitled to their belief? But there's one contradiction in all of this. For example, our own RSA, our Road Safety Authority. Mm -hmm. I'm never able to understand and I'm not backwards about going forwards on this issue. They think it's perfectly okay to go on the crusade that they have been on and they call it saving lives. And and if, if any of their work results in saving one life, I obviously would welcome that. But I've always been critical of them in the following way. That the argument that I put forward, not just this weekend or last weekend or last year or five years ago or ten years ago, but I've been continuously looking for uh, the issue of learning people to drive in our in our schools. I've been raising it. I've never once seen the RSA come out and saying, yes, we should start educating people at a younger age. They seem obsessed with speed, obsessed with drink driving, mm. obsessed with all these other things. But they never, ever took on board the teaching of young people. They seem to ignore that completely. And I was always critical of them of that. And there well, are well, they've objected to this proposal as well. But, I, but I'm not one bit surprised. I'm not one bit surprised. And I mean, remember, these are the same people that think it's okay for a person who owns a lorry to get that lorry tested yesterday and, and have it, it can be fully passed. And at the same time, they think it's all right for that lorry to be pulled in on the side of the road today and treat that lorry driver like he's a criminal or she's a criminal mm. and hold them at the side of the road for maybe an hour or two hours and go through the lorry with a fine tooth comb. And it's after having passed the test the day before. And they'll tell you that's in the interest of safety. Like, there's an awful lot of harassment of drivers going on as well under the guise of road safety. Sure, but isn't there also a thing whereby we have to put the image in our heads, Michael, of a 16-year-old driving a big 
horse of an SUV around the country roads as long as that's speed limited. So you could have a huge big Mercedes SUV, big two litre gas guzzler of a yoke, and it fell driving it at 16 because it's limited to 30 miles an hour. Can't be safe. But sure, the complete contradiction of what we're just after saying is that 16-year-old is perfectly entitled to drive a tractor with hundreds of horsepower under the engine and he can pull 20 or 30 ton behind him if he so wishes or she so wishes. On the, whole, on the that, public road? And that's perfectly legal. Well, they can't go on the motorway, but they're entitled to go on the public road. Hmm. Will so, be- I mean, that's a complete contradiction of what we're just after saying. If it's safe for a young person to drive a tractor on the public road... Why is it not safe for a young person to drive a motor car on the public road? Michael, we will leave it there. Always a pleasure. Michael Heady Ray. Take that little bit of logic at the end. It is perfectly legal for a 16-year-old to drive a tractor. You have what they call a W license. Perfectly legal for a 16-year-old to drive a tractor on the public road. Why wouldn't it be okay for them to drive a car on the public road provided that that car is limited, say, to 45 kilometres an hour or 30 miles an hour. And someone is saying here on the phone, and it's true, and I'm speaking in the context of a recent tragedy, and I wouldn't like to cast any aspersions on anybody, but you don't hear about 16-year-olds speeding on a tractor at half six in the morning or half three in the morning. You do hear about incidents to do with cars. And we had one awful tragedy, was it in County Galway a few weeks ago at six o'clock in the morning. And they had no tractor, it was a car. And we know that there's an awful lot of joyriding going on in Cork every weekend. And, and we're waiting, we're waiting here. The team's waiting, I'm waiting, the newsroom is waiting for the morning where somebody will have been killed driving one of these stolen Japanese imports around town. So it's happening anyway. And Michael Healy Ray makes that one point. You can go on the road in a tractor at 16 quite legally. Why can't we make it possible for a 16-year-old to drive a car properly, taught properly, limited in what they can drive and where they can drive and how they can drive? I don't have a view on this. My days of learning to drive and teaching people to drive are, are past me. Sandra. Good morning, PJ. Um, yeah, um, a few years back, my daughter, um, did it, it was with TY. When she was in TY, the school brought in Drive yeah. for Life. And it was one of the best things that could be brought into a school for kids because it, it showed videos of crashes, horrific crashes, and it just showed the kids basically full respect on the road that if you're going a certain, you know, certain kilometres, that basically this is the type of crashes you can have, you know, yeah. going from the, the mildest to the most horrific. And I suppose it taught some respect on the road before they actually went on the road because it could maybe put a little bit of fear into them of what could happen if you put your pedal down. Yeah. Um, well, back there when you were saying about the young lads there at 16 driving tractors, um, when it comes to haymaking season, drive a couple of the roads where the tractors are on and I think that would change your mind because some of these young lads, oh my God, the speed, it is horrific. They'd actually blow you off the road. So, yeah. Um, 
You'd be uh, against this, would you, Sandra? This idea oh, no, of the no, I, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't be against it. I think it's a fantastic idea. But I think there should be, like, say, the drive for life, for instance, where it shows respect. Yeah. And that at least at that age, if they, they have to have, we'd say, the drive for life done. And I think not just for kids, I think for everybody going out there learning how to drive. Anybody that's going on the road should do drive for life. They, it should be compulsory okay. within learning how to drive because it teaches you so much. Like, we say, God, I'm driving. I wouldn't even say that at this stage. But when I went out on the road first, there was no such thing telling you, hold your steering wheel in a certain way because if the airbags go off, they could cut your hands off. I wasn't told that. It was my daughter after doing her drive for life told me that. Yeah. You know, we are told to hold the steering wheel, to hold the steering wheel, but you're not told the danger of if the airbag goes off, what could happen. I see, I see. You know, if you understand what I mean. But, like, I think Drive for Life would be a very good idea for schools, every school to bring in, in maybe TY, or, you know, just for maybe the certain age groups that would be going on the road, because, I mean, there's 16 is in many classes, you know, it wouldn't just have to be TY. But it, it, I think it would be a very good idea. Okay. Um, like, I taught my son how to drive when he was 10. and what? Yeah, I, in fields, pulling a horse box, oh, gotcha. he's a better driver than myself, like... Um, he's, a, he's a great driver. He's waiting on he pass, hopefully passes test in, in August. But I think as well, when you teach them young, you know, in a field or wherever, like it's, I suppose it's easier for me to say that I can do that. But not everybody in the city can. I know, I know. But like, I, I know when he goes driving, I know I can trust him on the road. Yeah. Sandra, I'm going to leave it there with you because the line is not the best in the world, but thank you. Great points and very well made. This driving for life thing, I've heard of it. And I also was privileged a number of years ago to MC a session of a Road Safety Authority event at, at Rochestown Park where we had a huge crowd in from all of the schools. It might have been the same thing. And they had paramedics there, and they had doctors and guards. They put up demonstrations of crashes in the car park. They had a couple of people who'd been through road crashes and suffered life-changing injuries. About a four-hour presentation down at Rochestown Park Hotel. And as I said, I was privileged to be asked to, to host it for them on that day. And certainly coming out of it with some of what the kids were shown... They were shell-shocked, absolutely shell-shocked by what can happen on the roads. So that's a good one. Thank you for that, Sandra. Speaking of the roads and trouble on the roads, we're hearing that there is a collision on the south link between the Mahan flyover and the tunnel. And Tom has sent us in a voice message. Make you tell people to avoid the, the tunnel, going into the tunnel from the Balancholic side because there's a there's a four or five cars smashed into each other two fire engines are there the cops are there and people are just sitting there to try and tip them off to head a different way Tom thank you uh, Tom uses the tunnel every single day so a nasty accident heading towards the tunnel from the Mahan side emergency services at the scene let us hope that nobody is too seriously hurt no one's hurt at all, they would be preferable. Uh, in fairness, most schools teach driver skills in TY. Thank you, Deborah. 0818 96 96 96. Snap the app on Cork's 96 FM. Can I get a woohoo from you because you are now 500 euro richer? Woohoo! <laughs> 
Thanks so much. Thank you, Diane. You are now 500 Woo! euro richer. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. You've won it. 500 euro is yours. Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm actually going on holiday tomorrow, so it'll be you. You've won 500 euro. Congratulations to all our winners. Stay listening for our next Big Way to Win. Big Way to Win. Only on Cork's 96FM. Talking about this proposal from the European Commission that you'd be able to drive legally on the road at 16 once you had a car that was limited to a maximum speed of around 30 miles an hour. Uh, The European Transport Safety Council is putting up its hand to say no, that shouldn't be done, should not be done. Road Safety Authority here, not exactly impressed with it either. They say it would cause more problems than it would solve. Um, Michael Healy Ray making the point earlier in the programme that, look, you can drive a tractor at 16 anyway. He bought his first car when he was 11 and learned to drive on farmland before he went on the public road. His He has a daughter who does is it his daughter, he said? Had a first car at the age of 12. Um, PJ, many people messaging us this morning, messaging to say, what about 16-year-olds driving tractors? Uh, Jack says, this is a good point, any learner driver of a motorcycle who's under the age of 25 can't drive a bike of more than 125cc, so why not limit the cars that way as well? Um, and a lot of people talking about learning stuff in school, particularly during transition year. Let's get the view of a driving instructor here, uh, Darren Milan of Milan School of Motoring. This idea from the EU, Darren, good or bad? Good morning. I, I've mixed opinions on it, PJ, because, look, I'm going to go back, way back to 1998 when I was 16, right? Okay. And I was mad to get on the road like any other young fella. I was counting down the days till I got me an owner permit and I had a car on the road at 17. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I ended up as a taxi driver at 20. So I was always mad for road, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, we'll just take out the equation of kids that need to drive, right? I've, I've a young fella now, he's 15 in July, right? Okay. I plan on training him how to drive correctly I told him that he can have my school of motoring car when, when he comes 18, when I'm finished with it. And look, I plan on giving him full training, getting him a full license and leaving him on the road when he has a full license. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when I was 16, I remember going to my father going, Dad, I want to get a motorbike. Yeah. And he was like, no way. And if my 16-year-old came in and says, Dad, I'm not old enough to drive... I want to go in, I want to get a motorbike. They can drive a bike of up to 125cc now. A bike like that is capable of doing 120 kilometres an hour. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to ask yourself as a parent, would you rather your 16-year-old be inside in a car with four wheels or on a bike? Yeah. As someone who's and only ever I'm, ridden a motorbike once, uh, a nifty 50, too many years ago now to remember... And was so terrified I lasted about 100 yards. I know where I'd want to be. Well, I came off an RXS myself, uh, 100, an RXS 100 a number of years ago myself. And I'm going to be totally honest about it. I'm 40 and my wife won't let me get a motorbike. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's, there's not a hope in hell. Like, 
that's the only thing like that I see with learner drivers. Now, personally, I the insurance for younger drivers is coming way down. Is it? When I say when I say way down, no, like they're talking about eighteen hundred to two grand on a sensible car starting off. Right. But that's down from the fours and fives, like. Yeah. So like, it, it, and like, it will it, come down quite rapidly. My daughter, when she learned to drive, and she went on the road first with her full license. Over the next couple of years, she's driving, and she's a fine driver now, and she's driving quite a number of years. I saw it come down; it cascaded over a few yeah. years for her. Well, my private insurance this year came in at three fifty, which I thought was very cheap. Mm. Mm. You know, like I was always in around the five hundred euros, you know. But mm. like it came in at three fifty this year. But having said that, like the only thing that I would be look, I I'm not sure about limiting the car. Right. To the 30, 30 miles an hour. Look, you someone could get caught on a dangerous overtake or something like that. But look, I'd be more inclined to say they can drive a car of up to one litre or something or 1.1 litres. Or, you know, yeah. like the, the, other, the other thing about the speed in the car, and I, I'm not too sure about this technically, but if the, like, yes, if a 16 year old wants to drive my car at 45 kilometres an hour and it's limited to that. Or 30 miles an hour, it's limited to that. I just can't flick a switch when I sit in, can I? And turn off the limiter. No, you can't. And another thing is, look, there's another way too, like the insurance companies put in this box to the cars, right? Like, I'm going to be totally straight. I'm all for this box because my young fella, when he comes 17 and he gets on the road, I love to know that I have peace of mind knowing that he can't speed. Right. Like, and like, keeping your kids safe on the road, like, my, like, when I was 17, and I was driving, I was completely unmature. And like, we were all mad for the road. I was one of the McDonald's two years ago with the bonnet up and all this. When I, it was part of growing up. Mm. But like, today it is completely different in the sense of, like, I, parents come up to me. And they ring me for driving lessons and they go, my kid just turned 17. There's a couple of hundred quid given 12 lessons. But the problem is to become a competent driver with two types of customers, parents need to actually do the three or four hours a week with the kids and they're not doing it. Yeah. And that's the biggest problem that we have. Parents think they can throw me a couple of hundred quid and they'll get their license and they can drive on. But they don't want to put in the work. Like the EDT system is brilliant. Mm-hmm. If it's done correctly, you have to sit into you, the car with them on a Sunday morning. Take them, take in the city here. Now, I used to regularly bring my daughter up. We still talk about it up Sunday as well, Darren. Up there by the yeah. church, and like there'd be nothing on the road at, at t- half ten on a Sunday morning. But I say, right now, there's a fella going to come creating up that road in a truck, and he's going to be on the wrong side. So be ready for him. And she goes, but Dad, the road is empty. Yeah, but you're going to drive as if he was coming like the hammers of hell on the wrong side of the road. You have to do that with your kids. You have to. And like the, the sad thing about it is 70% of my clients don't have a sponsor. My mum won't get insured. My mum's too busy. My dad's too busy. And like we're sitting there then as instructors going, how do you expect to progress? Yeah. Like you, you can't teach experience. Now, I was reading statistics recently and they reckon that you need 120 hours of actual practical driving experience before you'd sit a test. Mm. Mm. Now, in it, like, 
in the UK where they take a lot more lessons than they do here, right? The average person takes 45 driving lessons wow. before they pass a test. Now, I reckon here, if, if it's done right, I reckon 16 would be enough here, right? They do the, If the EDT system is done correctly over six months and they do a driving lesson every two weeks and they get their three to five hours practice in between mm. and probably four pre-test lessons, the pass rate would be 90, 100%. Because mm. like the vast majority... The vast majority of people that fail their driving test do so because they don't have enough driving experience. Yeah. And, it, and it shows the first hazard that they meet on the road. Darren, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much, Darren Milan from Milan School of Motoring. I think people would be reasonably, as they say, well disposed towards the idea of 16-year-olds being able to drive as long as it was deemed to be very, very safe. And they were properly trained by people like Darren and others the old way we learned, it won't work anymore. The old way was you learned how to work the gears, you learned how to work the handbrake, you learned how to start, you learned how to stop. And then they took down the country, pointed you down a straight road and said, here, don't hit the ditch. You can't do that anymore. We'll have other calls on this um, later in the morning, but we need to change. We need to talk about the leaving cert. It is five weeks Today. Join the conversation. Well, five weeks out, so and the whole one thing I've observed um is in our experience anyway, I can only speak for our own experience and thinking back to when I did it and my brother did it and my sister did it. I think the whole house does the Leaving Cert, not just the student. Michelle Flynn, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Would you agree with me there? The whole house Absolutely. is a Leaving Cert house. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even speaking to parents in the last number of weeks, uh, it's a family situation. It's about keeping the house quiet. It's about everyone helping and kind of getting the best, you know, we we'll say uh, approach for it for the student that's doing the exam. So absolutely. Everyone goes through it with them. Everyone is there with them. It's a hard time, but it's worth it and worthwhile. Now, there's been two weeks off over Easter and you make the point that really there wasn't a whole lot achieved in that two weeks, but you can start building good habits from this moment. Absolutely. So as you mentioned earlier, there's exactly five weeks to the day and that you have plenty of time to develop a good, good, solid routine to stay focused for the next month. So it's about now, I suppose, renewing what's working for you, looking at your subjects, doing something that I would say or I would call a subject audit. So really kind of sit down. Your pre's are invaluable in terms of what subjects are working for you, what are your weakest you know, areas, what are your strongest, and to kind of revisit then and restructure a strong study plan for yourself that gives you time, but all also gives you breaks and that's vital at this stage as well. My own failing back in my time and it isn't yesterday and like it was I would spend hours at my favourites mm-hmm. but it wasn't yeah. my favourites uh, I needed to be topping up as it were. Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose that's a kind of a pitfall for students that they kind of like to give themselves, I suppose, a bit of confidence in looking over kind of subjects that they're good at. You know, all students are well able to talk about the subjects that they like, that they enjoy, and they tend to practice that. I suppose a very, very important point now is that you've got to look at, while you have time, look at your weakest subjects. So make out a list, you know, in terms of what really is bringing you down in that subject. And now, I suppose, essentially, it's very important that you get exam papers for those that you practice. You're still in school 
school, touch base with your teachers, make sure you see where you're going wrong and build your confidence in those subjects as well. It's a holistic view. You need to make sure that all subjects are working together to get the kind of points or results that you need. Is it old-fashioned thinking that with five weeks out, the ga is gone, Saturdays are gone. Yeah. Is is that old-fashioned thinking or do you know, do you now knuckle down for the next five weeks and just work, 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 work? Yeah, I suppose that you can't lock yourself into a room and expect anyone to study, you know, constantly for the next five weeks. It's going to be counterproductive anyway to you retaining any information and keeping calm. You need to get out. You need to enjoy things that you're doing. So obviously, maybe if you're building your study plan, like even in school at the moment, the rituals of leaving school, like graduation ceremonies, celebrations, they're all going on. And like, of course, you've got to engage in them and enjoy them. But it's just to keep focused and say for five weeks, what can I maybe take out of my life? for a while that I know that I get back to in June. So you don't have to give up everything, but I suppose, Mm. as I said earlier, it's to build your own plan. What's going to work for you? If you do need that hour on a Wednesday evening to run around and get stress levels to alleviate those, you know, do that if it helps you. So it's it's down to every single person, but I suppose it's to keep focused and to get through through the next five weeks as best as you can. People panicking. The the mocks didn't go particularly well. The oral, I'd rather not think about it. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. Do you know where where do you start mm-hmm. to focus? Like you kind of oh god, I, I you know, and you, then you get stressed because the oral was yeah, crap in, in mm-hmm. one subject, mm-hmm. the mocks weren't great yeah. in another. There's a there's a tendency to panic. It's a human tendency. Yeah, you've really hit kind of uh, you know a nail on the head there. I've met a couple of students at Career Hub lately who even said to me, you know, Michelle, I've been studying so hard. I feel so let down, deflated is the word. A couple of them reviews and like I'm really finding it uh, hard to refocus. And these are students who are going for big, big points and they feel a bit flat that they've worked so hard and this is the results that they have gotten. So I suppose the biggest advice that I or the way I'd work with those students is, first of all, to kind of renew and remember what's your goal, even if something as simple and as practical as sticking a picture up in front of your study area. This is where I want to be in September. Like keep that drive there, know what you want. And then redevelop your plan. I suppose I keep saying that, but it's so important that at this stage with five weeks that you do build a new plan. I know you're sick of, you know, putting study together and timetables and all of that that you've been doing all year. But now is the time for a new one. And as you mentioned earlier, like focusing on your weak areas, you know, keeping a real, real focus on technique and timing. You know, if something happened in the pre that you ran out of time writing an essay, sit down now, write one, have your phone, put on a timer, practice it, practice and practice. Now, you know the information at this point of the year, but it's all about applying it now for the right question to get the most marks. Look at, we'll say, practically the weighting of the marks. What, what question is the most important on that paper? So all these techniques are really going to refocus your motivation. Instead mm. of looking at the subject flatly and kind of saying there's so much of it, I don't know where to start. Start with the questions, start with the highest, you know, build it that way and just practice. You've really mm. got to do that at this stage. It really does help. Marking schemes and, and marking patterns are, they're more accessible now than they were when I was doing my leaving cert by far. Absolutely. Yeah, there are. Like, How important is it to know them, Michelle? absolutely essential like there's no other word I'd use but essential and like you can go on now to you mentioned there they're readily available they are they're on examinations.ie you can go every single year for the leaving search you get the paper and the marking scheme and what's also very valuable is that the chief examiner writes a report every year which details the weakest areas of a paper in a subject and the strongest areas so kind of look at your application to those areas and where you stand Like you should absolutely 100% know for example on an English paper to know that 
that the essay is worth 100 marks, for example, that's one quarter of your entire grade. So you really got to know where the highest areas are going, where what marks are going for what, what's the structure, what they want from the essay. There's no point in just you know, writing down everything that you recall. It's all about getting the right points. And on those marking uh, schemes that are available on examinations.ie, they actually give sample answers that would have been appropriate and relevant to those questions. So they're fantastic. And if you haven't looked at them, I'd highly, highly recommend that you do. Absolutely. Particularly to do with things like English prose and Irish poetry and stuff like that. Much focus was always, well, what's going to come up? Is it time now to stop predicting that and just focus? focus absolutely like of course you can kind of look back at different say for the likes of English or Irish or the ones you mentioned there you cannot predict what you know theme is going to come up in terms of essays this year you know you can obviously look at different things that have happened over the year but there's no banker question in English like that so you've really got to look at and what I would suggest highly is what are the marks going for so in your English essay you know 20 are going for expression then you've got marks for how you structure it in terms of an opening and a conclusion it's all those techniques that will give you marks you know, not wasting your time wondering what's going to come up. I know you like to kind of cut things down, but it's important that you kind of look at it properly in terms of how you're going to get the maximum marks out of each question. That's that's essential at this stage as well. So young John or young Mary are up in the room, study room, all day and all night. Now, mum and dad's role, brother's role, sister's role. Let's start with mum and dad. Absolutely. What's our role? Like, I understand. Yeah, I understand 100% that parents feel every bit of the stress uh, as their son or daughter does. And I know that. So for a parent, I suppose the biggest advice that I give them is try your best not to you know, be questioning their study approach, how much they're doing, what have they done. And the biggest thing that you can do is just be there to listen. So kind of things I'd say to parents, if you can at all for the first couple of exams, be there maybe to collect them or drop them in to, to, to talk to them to see how they got on. In terms of the household, I know it's siblings, as you mentioned earlier, things can be busy. But, you know, at certain times, if you could create calm, that's good for them to study, a bit of quiet. If you could take other siblings out, that would be, you know, hugely beneficial to them. I suppose hugely important to encourage them to take a break, maybe to go out for a walk with them if you can can or go for a coffee or something and then just food and sleep to make sure that they're not there you know scrolling or looking at notes at the night overnight or anything like that because some students tend to pull on nighters and like that's totally counterproductive to really you know being ready for exams so I suppose parents at home just to create a calm atmosphere be there for them to listen to encourage them and just to trust that they're, they've got the process that's all you can do at this stage you know nothing can be you know changed majorly for them it's just to help them support them I remember biting my tongue and my daughter would be going down <laughs> the stairs and you could see the, 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 the jacket going on and she's off yeah. out and I'd say where, where are you headed oh I'm going to meet and I'm a friend Right, yeah, shouldn't you be? And I shouldn't, I said, stop it, stop it, stop. Shouldn't you? I know, don't be asking the question, shouldn't you be studying? They know it's probably the worst thing, yeah, absolutely. It's probably the worst thing you can do now that they're on edge, they know what they have to do, they're in the middle of it, they're listening to it at school from teachers, you know, they're getting study techniques everywhere they go, and they know what they have to do. And the worst thing, I suppose, you can do is question their their system or what they're doing, or as you mentioned there, where you're going. It's more important just to say, you know, sit down for a cup of tea. How are you getting on? Is there anything that I can do to help you? Just to be there to listen and to support them. And it's the same for siblings. Just to be there to support them, maybe to go out, kick a ball with them, go for a walk. Just support, be a friend, and be an ear, I suppose, is the best thing. What about shopping time? Um, They're going to eat. 
they might live on noodles for the next five weeks. Yeah. They're going to eat junk. They're, you, like, mm-hmm. Should you consider over the next five weeks that they're likely to start making flipping noodles at four in the morning and just have the stuff and yeah, let them, like, let them do that? I suppose they're going to want to snack on different things and you know, food is comfort, I suppose, in a way getting through study. But I suppose it's important that they do have a good diet, you know, full of you know, important foods, carbohydrates, everything, and that's right. And I suppose that's, you know, maybe how a parent can help out practically is just to have the food there, you know, have plenty of water, fruit, vegetables, and try your best to encourage. But I know you can't come up against, you know, a fight at this stage. You know, teenagers are going to snack on those kind of things. But once they have a balanced diet to refuel themselves. The thing is, uh, yeah, uh, ma'am, I don't want a flipping banana. I want chocolate. I don't (laughs) want want a banana. Give me bloody chocolate. And I suppose, I suppose that's the thing. You've, you've really got to pick your battles now at this stage and just try and just try to incorporate everything. But I know it's hard and yeah. everyone's going to be on edge and it is an anxious time. So you've just got to try to, to work your way through it. Okay. Careerhub.ie is there as a resource. Tell me about it. Yeah, so careerhub.ie is, I have a website, obviously, first of all, I have loads of kind of templates in terms of study techniques and just ways, again, like for parents or like over the year I go through like studying abroad. So for any fifth years looking into courses, I do things like testing and all of that. So I also have an Instagram page and like a lot of parents uh, have contacted me, you know, thanking me, I suppose, because parents are not in school and sometimes teenagers, you know, you're met with a... I don't know what happened or I don't know what day that is again. So like, for example, now that you mentioned it, like this Friday is a vital day for Leaving Stars and their parents. And a lot of parents have contacted me that they didn't know when I had had it up on Instagram. So careerhub.ie. So Why, example, is it? Why is it vital? Just fill me in. Because... Yeah, so every CEO, so basically any Leaving Cert that has applied for the CEO this year, everyone is going to receive an email, a thing called the Statement of Application. So they're going to get that and they're asked by the CEO to review it. So what does that mean? So things like if you're all your personal details, your examination number, if you're required to put any documentation for, you know, exemptions or anything like that, everything has to be accurate and you must hit, I suppose this is the key, the confirm button. At that stage, then you're telling the CEO that everything I have here is correct. So when it comes to rounds and offers um, coming up to August or whenever the results are out, it's so important that all your information is right, that you didn't miss out on anything in terms of exemptions. People lose places because of this so it's vital that like and again you talk okay. about parents what can they do if they could sit down with their son or daughter on Friday and go over this and make sure it's right okay. that's probably the first thing and then the CEO change of mind facility opens on Friday as well that runs the 1st of July so you can change courses there's always panic around this add in courses you can do whatever you want to your course choices between Friday and the 1st of okay. July so at least you have time one or two last brief ones before we head away Michelle, someone here saying a lot of the leaving certs in their kids' school have now dropped out and decided to stay at home. Should you stay on at school? To be honest, my advice is yes. Um, I know there are going to be things like, you know, maybe classes that are study, but if you build a... Oh... I have a free class, we'll say, for 40 minutes to do some note work. The reason I'd be an advocate for going into school at this stage is because a lot of teachers at this stage will be looking at things like technique, will be taking an exam question and saying, right, what points would you use here? So you're not going into school, going over and over, flicking through a book. It's all about technique. And a lot of teachers okay. would do sample answers now. And that's what I'd highly encourage you. Also, it keeps your routine going. You know, if you're yeah. kind of at home, you might be a bit lost. So as long as you can, you know, I know. Stay, stay, stay there as long as you can. And lastly, and yeah. briefly, mm-hmm. how much time per day should a youngster be studying? That's a question from a parent. 
Yeah, so we'll say there's no, we'll say set rule, but what I would encourage is to incorporate blocks. So for example, if you had a Saturday there now, an example would be you get up, some people prefer to start at 7am, some people start, prefer to start at 9. A block is roughly about an hour and a half, okay, so that, that's productive then. But in the middle of that, set your phone, 45 minutes, just take five minutes. After the hour and a half block then, get up and take a substantial break before you come back to do another block. But I suppose the key thing then is the night before to have that block planned. So for example, I know this morning I'm starting with an exam question in biology. I'm learning my key terms in geography. They're my two aims. I'm going to get those done practicing and build it that way. There's no point sitting down with books everywhere for eight hours, picking up this book, looking at that book. You really have to have a system. And it's all about creating, you know, if you could do five blocks a day or do four even, that would be fantastic, yeah. but it's productive the way you do it. Take your breaks and break up the block as well. Okay. All right, Michelle, and lots more information on careerhub.ie. Michelle Flynn, career guidance counsellor and career advisor. Um, careerhub.ie. Thank you. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Yeah, definitely a nasty looking set of uh, circumstances down there by the tunnel this morning. We don't know if anybody is badly injured. Emergency services were at the scene. A few vehicles involved. If you have been through there, or around there, and it is safe to do so, uh, you might pop us a voice message 083 396 96 96. Let us know what's going on and what the situation is as you see it. Speaking of the roads and speaking of, of driving, a lot of interesting contributions coming in this morning on whether or not 16-year-olds should be allowed to drive on the public road in a car that would be speed limited to about 30 miles an hour. This is coming from the European Commission, although European safety experts are saying no, it would be dangerous. The Road Safety Authority is against it. We took a view from Darren Milan, a driving instructor. He would have, I think most driving instructors seem to have mixed views on this, onto the practicality of it. Michael Healy-Ray and Kerry TD believe that in rural areas, and look, he said, they're driving tractors anyway at the age of 16, quite legally, and we're getting a few messages to that effect. Quite safely driving tractors around, so why not let them have access to the roads? It's so much easier for young people to get to work, get to school, to get around in general in places where, for example, there isn't public transport. So there's a lot of different views on it. Anna, I think, Anna, is it one or three? Three, lads, is it? Anna, you are a driving instructor, I think, but you still wouldn't let your son drive at 16, no? Morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Very no, well, no. <laughs> definitely not. Um, I can see what kind of ideas he has without having a car, so I can't really imagine him driving a car. Would it not be something that he does he want to? For example? Oh, he would. He would love to. Um, I would even say that he's convinced that he can already drive a car oh. without without even sitting in one, because oh, it I looks see. so easy when I'm driving them to school. I think most well, people think that, though, when their parents are driving them to school. I remember I certainly thought, when my mum and dad was driving me, that, God, that's really easy. And then I sat yes. in there. Yes, but n- no, I, I don't think a 16-year-old is mature enough. Because you, be, you have to be mature to be driving a car, to have consideration of other old users, have a bit of imagination of what can happen. Yeah. 
and I don't think at that age you have any of that. Obviously, there are exceptions. Yeah. There, you would have a 30-year-old that shouldn't be driving a car. Mm. But I think 16 is a little bit too early. Maybe um, do it the same way with the, as with the learners now. They can pass their theory test and drive with parents. Yes. But yeah. definitely not on their own. What about the argument that they can already drive a tractor on the roads at 16? You see, I think that shouldn't be allowed either. Um, 30 years ago, we had different tractors. Now there are massive machines, um, very fast machines, and I don't think that somebody who didn't have passed a driving test should be driving it. Mm. Especially that I worked in Clonakilty before, and I had some boys that were telling me what they are trying to do with the tractors. Yeah. So I just, I just don't think they are mature enough to, to be driving. There's another argument we made too, Anna, and I'm sure you've come across it: um, teenagers who are driving anyway. Um, legal, uh-huh. Ill- illegally, wouldn't it be better to set a, set up a system where they can learn legally rather than be chancing their arm illegally? Yes, and that's the, that's the thing. Um, driving with the parents, as it is now. Obviously, mm. there are 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds that are driving on their own, which, as you said, is illegal. But... People are doing illegal stuff, they regardless. The, the whole thing about having the parents with you, you can see the impracticality of it, though. That if, you know, if you're, you're, you're learning to drive, you're waiting for your test, you're waiting for the very long time that you have to wait for your test, but you can't drive to college because, well, mum has to go to work or dad has to go to work. It's impractical for people who are very close to a test and waiting for a test. Yes, that's why um, I think somebody suggested that a driving instructor could um, write something for RSA that would say, look, this person is waiting for the test, but they're 100% ready for it and they're safe on the road. Mm-hmm. They should be allowed. Maybe do something like that, or like an assessment from a driving instructor. Yeah, yeah. Because of the waiting time. But certainly not have them. Certainly not have them driving at sixteen. You don't think they'd be ready for it, and certainly your own lad wouldn't be, is what you're saying. To me. No, definitely not. I have three boys, and I don't think any of them would be ready. <laughs> and thank you. Oh wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Or even if they get on the road, they won't be able to afford insurance at sixteen. Says Mick. It's astronomical for teens and for young people. And Darren Milan was making the point earlier, Mick, that it's actually starting to come down for, for younger people. Uh, as an employer, the two criteria I need to fill are proficiency in English and having a driving licence. You'd be amazed how many people can't drive. It comes into jobs. It might only be occasionally. It might be short distances. But the ability to drive does come up in the workplace more often than you think. People get taught a lot of things for their leaving cert that they'll probably never use. But almost everyone needs to be able to drive. And Kate says not only driving should be taught at school, but basic banking, tax, online skills, PC skills. People are being taught all the wrong things. They end up being useless in the world of work. I don't mean they're useless people, but anyone taking them on has a mountain to climb because they don't have the basics. That's a whole day's discussion in itself, Kate. People walking into workplaces with more degrees than a thermometer and, and they don't know the basis, basics of how to do the actual job. 
That's a whole, whole broad, broad discussion. Yeah. 0818 PJ, I'm from West Kerry when I was in transition year in secondary school, maybe 16 years of age, as part of our school year. We had driving lessons with a driving school once a week for six weeks. We also had a one-day tractor driving safety course. And we did a safe pass course. We found that especially living in a rural area, everyone found it advantageous and critical even to learn these skills while they were in school. That's from, from Neve. And this isn't signed, but I do like it. A simple rule when you're out driving. If you have a car tailgating you, he's the problem. If you have a line of cars tailgating you, maybe, maybe you're the problem. Yeah. Uh, if you have a car that can only do 30 miles an hour, I think it would be more of a hindrance on the road and indeed be more of a danger to yourself. But great show. Thank you. Thank you. 0818 96 96 96. Jean Russell is with Douglas School of Motoring. Jean, I think it's fair to say that, that you have kind of mixed views based on, on your experience over the years. Morning. Good morning, uh, PJ, and good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this, this has only popped out of the blue, uh, uh, kind of that we might introduce people at 16 years of age that can go out and drive on a restricted vehicle. There's good points to that, I suppose. There's good bad points to that. I would say, why is this happening? Because people are waiting too long when they're 17. They, they're saying, we better start way earlier because it's going to take us a lot longer. No, I don't mind people driving a bit earlier. It's fine. Some, you know, it's the same as alcohol. Is someone responsible at 18? Are they not? Are they responsible at 16? Are they not? Mm. It's an open question, right? But I can understand some of the arguments and some of the points put forward by some of the politicians up and down the country saying, you know, that people need to go places. They need to be urgent. They need to go to work. They need to go to school. Yeah. And I can understand that they need to get on the road a bit earlier. And I accept that. Um, so it would kind of get people going and make up the system looser that people are more fluent and gives them more openness. But I would say, like, if the system was improved at the moment, I think like that. At the moment, so we say you start at 16, you're there, you're restricted at 45 kilometres an hour. That, that would be the so plan, yeah. You can restrict the vehicle. You don't have to buy a certain vehicle to restrict it. It's like motorcycles. You can say we can put a restrictor in. But then again... It's a lot of legislation, it's a lot of stopping, holding all the vehicles restricted, it's paperwork, it's a bit of this and a bit of that. Whether the young fella sits into it and drives a gene at 45 kilometres an hour and then I sit into it to drive to work and to I have to take this limiter off, so I have to have some technical knowledge. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible if the the vehicle is limited to be limited on it's taken out physically, it would probably need someone to do it, it wouldn't be switch on and switch off. Otherwise, yeah. there'd be no point in it. Yes, yes, yes. That, 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 that's the first um, so technical hurdle. Like It would be. And not only that, then, but you'd have people on an 80 zone doing 45. So yeah. you're going to create tailbacks and people are going to be overtaken. So it's going to create hazards as well. So you'd have to restrict areas. You'd have to restrict vehicles. You'd have to bring in new legislation. And you know yourself, by the time we do all that, it's going to take a lot of time and effort mm. and then it's still going to push everything back. Do you think the current system could be streamlined to make it work better? I mean, Correct. you and I have talked before about how damn slow it is anyway. Yes, and that's, that's what I would kind of per, per se. Look, you know, if a young fellow is 17, now you say he turns 17, he's doing his leaving in the summer, we'll get him his licence, we'll get him out driving, he'll be 18 or 19. 
by the time he he's getting any license. But what maybe would be a good idea at 16, they could start like a leaving. You do your study. You do your study at 16, you get your theory test at 16, mm. so you get all your documentation ready. So the minute you're 17, you have your license in your hand and you're ready to go. Yeah. And the other thing is, if the waiting list wasn't six months, that it was four to six weeks, then you could say, right, he's 17, he has his license, he's going to learn how to drive or whatever. There'll be plenty of time for lessons because it won't be as busy. I mean, if I have clients come to me and they're doing a test next week, their priority. So the learner goes back to the end. You know what I mean? You have to push him back. So you give the the person the test priority. That's why learners are finding it hard to get instructors because they're waiting. There's more important things going on. So I would definitely think streamline the system we have, get people out, and so that when they hit 17, they have their license, they get their lessons within a reasonable time, and within they apply for the test, and within a month, they have their test done, if they're ready. Road Safety Authority came out and said no. Crazy idea. They say it will increase the the, the number of accidents. But the point you're making, Gene, is young people are in an impossible situation. They want to get on with their lives. Driving is a necessary skill. Absolutely. And they can't learn it. And especially now at the moment, everywhere is mobile. There's no fixed offices. People need to be mobile. You look at a lot of jobs now, full license, full license, full license. And just people moving out of the towns due to rent and all the rest of it, they need accessible. I have a girl going to coach her now. She has to stay with her brother in town because she can't drive in and out on an L. That law was always there, but it's being enforced now. You can't drive on an L place. So for the first year and a half or two years, like it's yeah. mum and dad or whoever else happens to be needs to be with you before you can drive even in the shop. That's correct, correct. So I I definitely say right, and you know yourself. I think legislation just I think make the laws we have enforce them, get yeah. them working efficiently, and it would be a lot of less trouble and another kick. We're only kicking the problem down the road. I think with this, it's going to be another year or two before we talk about it, kick it around, get it done. Yeah. Whereas no. Just get down to it, get the head down, get it working, get it out of the way, get people done, and that would be everyone happy. Can I raise something else, Richard, that comes up on the programme from time to time, Gene, through people calling and through my own observations as I commute into work here of a morning? Scooters. This particular age group we're talking about are on scooters. Mm. Scooters that can yeah. go fast, they can go the wrong way down the one-way street. You, we've all seen it. Oh, You've seen it. I've, I'm predicting someone's going to be killed off one yeah, of those absolutely. things. Yeah, there you go. No, I mean, some of these scooters are like 35, 40 kilometres. Yeah. They're quite kicked out. And some people are very good in them. I must give them credit. They have all the high fizz and they're very good. They stop at traffic lights. But they're not supposed to be on the road anyway. No, no. I mean, the danger there is anything happens, that scooter, or if there's any serious incidents, where's it all going to come from? There's no insurance on their behalf. There's no tax, there's no responsibility, there's no training, there's no safety limits, there's no health and safety. You get on a school, you do what you like, basically. And that's what we see. But it should be regulated a bit more. Again, we'll have regulations, but are they going to be enforced, PJ? Well, they're not being enforced now. Even this morning, I was coming in. (laughs) Even this morning, I was coming in South Terrace. And there's a scooter coming against me. The wrong way, blissfully unaware of what's going around him. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's the roads, Peter. That that reminds me of my lovely day ahead. I mean, you you have to be trained correctly, and I mean, it, it all comes down to it: uh, giving people space and time, 
and given to young people, you know, I mean, responsibility. You look at 16, 17, 18, I can't say. You get very responsible young fellas at 16, 17. You get very irresponsible people at 16, 17, even the older. So it's, it's hard to put in it. The age doesn't really matter. Mm. I think it's just getting people efficiently. Once they start, they have a plan and they can put a timing on it. I'm going to do this. And by this time next year, if I do my work, I'll have my licence. Jane, have a safe day on the roads. Thanks very much. And I hope mind the scooters and the buses and stay all the rest of it. And uh, keep an eye out. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye, Jane. Thank you. <coughs> Jane Russell of the Douglas School of Motoring. We can go back to this if we have more contributions. But there's another one. See this on the front of the examiner this morning. I, I got to mention this before we move on from, from driving. This fella in Trinity College, he's a professor in the Department of Civil, Structural and Environmental Engineering, man by the name of Mr. Caulfield. Probably a lovely man. I have no doubt that he is. But he wants to take SUVs off the road. An awful lot of people out there saying now that SUVs should be taxed out of existence. He isn't mentioning that, but he wants, in an ideal world, we'd stop selling them. It's part of a, an environmental campaign. He, he's saying that increased sales of electric vehicles haven't even made a dent in transport emissions, and he wants SUVs to be phased out of the market. Now, the, in, the article in the Examiner, written by Patrick Hoare, doesn't as such, define what an SUV is. Like, we have a, a Dacia Duster, a grand car. It's a 1.4, for goodness sake. It's it's not exactly a Ferrari. Um, but it's a fine car, and it's afraid of its life of fuel. It, it runs away from the garage. Um, so and there are bigger cars out there that are just big, comfortable cars to drive if you drive a bit, as, for example, Queen Bee does in, in, with her work. She drives a bit. Like, where did where are they going to get off of this declaration of war against the ordinary family motorist? You know, um, taxing our cars out of existence is what some people want, and stopping the selling of certain cars would be another thing. Like, we're all about we're all about the knowing that we have to be more sustainable. We're all about taking better care on the road. We're all about using clean fuel and making making sure our car is well maintained so we're not pouring noxious gunk out the back. And yeah, maybe one day we'll be able to afford to move to electric cars. But this kind of... I say it before and I say it again, there seems to be a war has been declared on, on the average driver. These days, oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I'm probably talking out my backside. Someone will tell me if I am. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Do you know when an official report comes out, and when you read through it and read about it, you think, yeah, people have been telling us this for years, anecdotally. But now there it is in black and white. I'm talking about the prisons and a report by prison chaplains, a whole group of them that do chaplaincy work in the prisons. And, and they have been reporting that our prisons are full of people who shouldn't be in there for any number of reasons and are not well. They're not mentally well. And, and really, they should be anywhere else only in a prison and the conditions in which they are in the prison 
is not conducive to their getting well. Mick Clifford's been writing about this in The Examiner. Mick, that, that chaplain's report, it, it makes for grim reading. A lot of people in our prisons, yes, they've committed crimes, but they, they're, they're not getting any better while they're in the prison. Morning. Morning, PJ. Yeah, that, that, that's very true indeed. I suppose to put a small bit of context on it, the chaplain's reports are what you might call the closest we'd get to an independent view on the ground mm. as to what's going on inside in prisons because they're there to advocate exclusively for prisoners and staff and they're not there, they're not part of the system as such. So what they're telling, and they've no agenda quite obviously, their only agenda is pastoral care in the broadest sense. They've no agenda at all. So that's why these reports, I think, are pretty important because they're giving you a very neutral, uh, judgment-free and outside-the-system kind of view. And as you said, they, they make a number of points in relation to it. One here, for example, from the Midlands prison. I mean, this one here is, is talking about our prison continues to hold residents here who should be cared for in appropriate mental health care facilities. This point in relation to prisons was highlighted by the Director General of the IPS. That actually happened again last week. Um, and, and, and it goes on to say that that, that um, the Director of the Central Mental Hospital said that uh, in terms of waiting lists that people are being kept in prison because there are no beds available to them in the central mental hospital. Mm -hmm. Now, think about that. What we're effectively saying is because people can't be cared for in a mental health setting, they're put in prison instead. And the, the thing that arises also here is that it would seem that it's relatively obvious that in most of these cases, the primary driver in these people coming into conflict with the criminal justice system and the, and the open prison mm. is their mental health difficulties. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Cork report, which you, which you quote in the examiner, says that a prisoner is being housed in an environment where an illness is just likely to get worse. Yeah, and that sums it up, really. You know, I mean, uh, it, it just, they, they, there's, there's they, they're not equipped. Like prison officers, they're not trained, they're not equipped. It's a bit like putting me in, out there as a guard. I'm not trained for it. Prison officers are not equipped to deal with it. They don't have the facilities to deal with it. And yet, they're expected to deal with it. And very often, you have scenarios, the other thing it leads to, unfortunately, and I covered a very tragic case a few years ago in relation to this in Limerick Prison, where a young man, very obviously mentally ill, um, he was inside only a matter of days. He was nearly 30. He'd never been in prison before, and, and he ended up taking his own life. He was in such isolated circumstances. Yes. And he was a prime example of somebody who should have been in a psychiatric facility. Mm. But it's not happening. Like, for instance, there's very much a class issue here too, PJ. If, if you or me run into mental health difficulties, we'd, we, we could be fortunate enough to access healthcare. But if you're talking about people who might come from a very disadvantaged background, that access isn't there. Their illness, in some instances, may not be, um, people may not be alerted to it or whatever, and they could end up being get easily led, get involved in crime, and mm. that's how some of them just basically end up in prison. And we've, 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 we've talked, um, make to both of the, the two Norries, regularly on the show, talked recently to Willa White, another, he's a standout comedian and actor, uh, former prisoner. He, and he has a brilliant, I saw, I saw his, his, play his, his drama is absolutely Magnificent, fantastic. isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. His, yeah. his own story is a, an indicator of exactly what's in this report. 
Very much so, and and, and that's it. And, and you'll find it, like fortunately, like so Willow and them are, are people who've been through it and who are both articulated, articulate and interested in reform. And, and the more people like that, the better, because that is, to use that term we use often now, real life experience yeah. and, and lived experience. And the problem goes back to an awful lot of problems to do with the prison service people. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And that is the political will is not there to change it. Yes, there is what you might call residual compassion, as there would be in any scenario for people who find themselves in that situation. But beyond that, the kind of things that drive political will, the the, the, the constant going after it, the application of resources, all of that is not there. And the reason it's not there is because the body politic perceives, probably correctly, that the general public are not that interested in the issue. Mm. And it certainly won't be anything that will be involved in winning votes. And to my mind, therefore, the body politics' main interests in regard to prison is to avoid any kind of controversy that might bring bad headlines. And if that is your prime motivator, mm. then these very deep-seated and worrying issues are not going to get addressed. Your article in The Examiner makes the suggestion uh, that there are people within or. Yeah, within the prison service, who would prefer, for example, that this chaplain's report didn't see the light of day? Well, I mean, there's some evidence there to the extent that this was published. These, these from, from the 12 state prisons were, as I said, they're the one independent vice. They were published last Friday evening. Friday evening, bank holiday weekend, PJ, who, who throws out stuff <laughs> at, at, at that time? And more to the point, they're published, what is it, Mark, 14 months 
after they were submitted, 14 months after they were submitted. These are 2021 reports. So, you know, when you have that kind of thing, uh, you, you would have to raise questions in that respect. And one, there was a chaplain in the Doka Centre who left and she wrote to the DG of the prison service outlining her concerns for the way prisoners were being treated. And again, with, with, with women prisoners, you, you have a whole different set of circumstances as to how they actually end up in crime and that kind of thing. But these are independent reports. And, and the, the one thing the system does not like is somebody being in a position to give the unvarnished truth mm. without having to uh, to owe anything to anybody. And that's why I would suggest that um, the, the, the less of this stuff coming out, so to speak, the better as far as some in uh, in authority would see it. Yeah, yeah. One, one report w- was of a woman called Mary who was in jail in Dorcas for theft of less than a thousand euro. She had a uh, special needs and she ended up happier in there than she'd never been on the outside but how was she going to go back outside when her time was done was a question being asked by the chaplains Exactly and in that instance I know it's a tiny detail but it's really indicative that woman as as, she, as reported in the report did not have one visitor while she was in there yeah. so quite obviously she is somebody who's in a very vulnerable situation and then, as you say, she goes back out into the general population. She's back into chaos of one sort or another after her term inside having done nothing to address the the, the primary issues that, that, that affected her. Mm. Lastly, Mick, we see prison as a place of retribution for your crime. You commit a crime, you go to prison. You're going to spend time there. It's a punishment. It's society's way of punishing you. But you should have an opportunity to come out the other side a better person. In this report, we're seeing people are going in there sick and coming out sicker. And that's just one of the problems. Absolutely. And the other thing, PJ, is people have the impression that holiday is some kind of a, a holiday camp of some sort or another. I mean, the whole psychological and physical impact of merely being deprived of your liberty and subjected to a, a regimented regime inside in the prison is uh, I, people totally underestimate I don't think it last a week what that is in terms of I don't think it last I a week I don't either yeah. I, they totally underestimate the impact that has on the person and what it is with respect to punishing people and the other element that, as, as you pointed out uh, you know this is supposed to be done with a view that people will come out better placed to integrate back into society and contribute to society and we see from, from uh, in terms of proportional recidivism and everything else that is not being done it's not, not happening. Mick, thank you. Mick Clifford, Special Correspondent of the Irish Examiner, the state of the prison system. 0818 96 96 96. And that report from the chaplains, which certain people in the prison service would not like published, but published it is. Uh, 0818 96 96 96. Still some people coming into us on young drivers. I'll get back to it. I want to read this out again, lads. I did it yesterday towards the end of the show <clears throat> and I'd like people's thoughts on it this was posted, now it's a week or so ago on the Cove notice board it's about traffic and parking wardens and all of this and where was I the other day I was in Douglas and I was parking the car I literally went for an errand that would take three minutes and I paid for an hour's parking just so that I wouldn't run into grief with the nice man from Apoka. Um, 
down in Douglas. I paid for my car for an hour for a three-minute errand because said. And I was reminded of that when we got this. I'm feeling so blue right now, says the person who posted this. Just watched the traffic warden ticket a car that parked behind me only a few minutes ago. The car is parked in a loading bay at the top of Harbour Hill in Cove. And I guess from the people that got out, from the looks of things, they may have been heading for the doctor's surgery. I stepped out of my own car, which was legally parked, and I approached the warden and said, I thought the people from that car might have been taking an elderly relative to the doctor's surgery, that they'd only just left and they probably wouldn't be long. The warden shrugged his shoulders and said, look, this is a loading bay and put a ticket on the car. Now, I appreciate the warden has a job to do, but life is already so hard for so many people. It just made me feel so sad that when they get back from the doctor, there's a fine waiting for them. Is this really proportionate enforcement? At least that's just a fine. There are places where it'll be clamped. I know one doctor's surgery in, in Douglas, doctor's surgery, where there's a sign inside the door of the doctor's surgery saying, please pay for your parking because they'll clamp your car. And they do. And they have done many, many times. But is there a thing about enforcement like that? Should it be proportionate? Remember there was a lovely man, I don't know if he's still with us, if he is, somebody will tell me, lovely man called John Sutton he was a kind of a supervisor among the traffic wardens in town long ago when they wore those brown and yellow uniforms, I'm going back a bit now John used to go around on a little motorbike and I made, for, for a radio feature actually, I went around with John and he showed me that they had some bit of discretion now and how to tell whether a car had been there for more than five minutes or whether if the guy came back oh god I was only there two minutes he said you know I could tell very quickly whether or not the car had been there for two minutes or not Um, and he had a little bit of discretion but that's gone I think an awful lot of it is gone 0818 96 96 96 just just a thought that accident that happened earlier this morning near the tunnel You, you came across it Claude on your way to work was it good morning Hi, PJ. Yeah, came across it. I was sitting in it for nearly an hour, if not maybe an hour. Yeah. God, what happened? Do you know? Well, when I came along at the emergency services, were there and everything. It's two cars just as you're coming into the tunnel, and um, it looks like a bad enough crash, but not two. There's no cars on their roofs or anything, and um, tow trucks are there now cleaning it up. But I'd say it'll probably still take another 20 minutes or so to actually get the road in full use again. Yeah. But absolute mayhem. Yeah, it's, it's happening an awful lot. This, and, and the slightest tip of a morning now, and we're all backed up, we get it every day, and people are late for work and frustrated. Were you late, for example? Yeah, I was just over 30 minutes late for work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you probably have a good boss that says, all right, you're right, I, I was cutting it too. But there's people going into work, oh, well, tough, you lose a half an hour's wages. That's... That's what's going oh, no. on. Oh, my boss is the best. <laughs> Good. I got the best boss in Cork. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Thanks for that. And it, it, okay. You reckon it is all being cleared up now? Well, like I said, the tow trucks were there and they were starting to move one of the cars. Mm. So, yeah, I'd say within the next. 15 minutes, it should be clear and both lanes open again. Very good. Thanks for that. No no evidence of any injury, which is which is a good thing. 0818 96 96. Yeah, but we're just saying here, like, the council are going to have to start intervening soon with people's bosses. 
because you can be with the best will in the world you could leave for work at the right time maybe even 10 minutes ahead of the right time to get a start on the road so the slightest tip bang and you're you're held up like Claude was half an hour late for work this morning there are people going into work in shops and offices but I'm thinking particularly shops and they'll have bosses who won't be sympathetic and I'm thinking of the person who lost half an hour's wages this morning because they clocked in a half an hour late uh, having left home at the right time properly prepared they're due to start their shift at 9 o'clock through no fault of their own they're not getting in till 20 past 9, half past 9, 20 to 10 so they're down um, half an hour or an hour's wages and that's just the way it is, shouldn't be but that is just the way it is and if that happens to them two or three mornings a week they're down two or three hours wages a week in the current cost of living situation that's not uh, that's no good news for anyone plus the fact that there are people who would put you on a warning after you've had three incidents like that or even two incidents like that in a week or a fortnight or a month so this is causing problems for people at work all the time that we mightn't hear about or see or thinking in that 0818-96-96-96. Remember we were talking yesterday about, again, about codeine. Uh, talking to Colin Bourke about the research done with regard to codeine and all the codeine that's being prescribed in the system. Uh, something like a million codeine prescriptions. And then we don't know how much of it has been bought over the counter. And this ongoing discussion that is there as to whether we should tighten up our codeine rules, because we do have some of the most liberal codeine rules in the EU. That's just a fact. But pharmacists are a bit uncomfortable with the idea of tightening. Some pharmacists, I think everyone everyone for themselves in pharmacy, are uncomfortable with the idea of tightening up the codeine rules until we do something about, say, Waiting lists. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818-969696. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96 FM. Well, there was a doctor in Donegal who also happens to be the local coroner up there. His name is Dr. Dennis McCauley. And he was blaming waiting lists for orthopedic surgeries for the high level of cocaine. Or sorry, cocaine, my God. Uh, codeine use. Apologies, codeine use. And he's saying, look, people are in pain for years and they're taking codeine to ease that pain and they're becoming addicted to it. Pat Dalton has the pharmacy down there on North Main Street. Do you see a lot of addiction out there, Pat? A lot of people coming into to, to the pharmacy with problems and you're still having to serve them. Morning. Good morning, PJ. Um, yeah, I suppose it's a it's a difficult question for me to answer with any definitive authority as regards do I see a lot of addiction out there. Um, we, we, you, you never know what's going on in, going on in someone's life um, when they come into the pharmacy with either a prescription for painkillers, for codeine, or or requesting uh, Norfolk Plus. Mm. I would say the vast majority of people that do come in, you know, they, they, it's just a short-term problem. Um, but then there's, you know, the people who are on the long-term uh, pain medication and as that doctor outlined are on a waiting list and really 
the GPs have, have made clear, you know, that, that their their hands are tied. They, they don't have a massive uh, selection of things to prescribe for pain. Mm. Um, you've got a pain ladder and you've got, like, at the bottom, you've got paracetamol and ibuprofen. Um, and then as you go up the ladder, you, you're at the top pretty quick. Mm. Um, you know, there was, a few years ago, there was lots of new anti-inflammatories on the market, that weren't meant to have some of the side effects of the existing anti-inflammatories, a lot of them ended up being taken off the market. Mm. Uh, there's problems with anti-inflammatories being prescribed in elderly patients because of problems with their kidneys, problems with their heart. Um, so a lot of these patients have just ended up on coding products. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really hard question for me to answer. I, I, I'm, I work in a community pharmacy we deal a bit with addiction, but we're not at the cold face of you know the addiction treatment centres. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Possibly you you will have seen the prime time documentary earlier in the year about people who do this kind of chemist pharmacy tourism that they go to four or five different places. Now, as a pharmacist, you've no way of knowing if I have been to four pharmacies before you, have you? That that is correct, PJ. We we don't have a way of knowing. Um, and people will have different views on that. I mean, everyone is entitled to their privacy, to their, you know, their data being protected. At the same time as a pharmacist, if if I am to make a, a sale of a, of a coding product, I would like to know that that sale is is genuine. It, it's it's not putting someone in harm's way. Um, and by not knowing what their habits are, uh, that puts me at a disadvantage as a pharmacist in making that call whether I should make that sale or not. Yeah. And that is something. I would like, in a very limited capacity, to know if these if this person is a problematic purchaser, is an excessive purchaser yeah. of a coding product. And I, I do think a simple system, you know, the way technology has advanced, this is very achievable in a, in a simple way that wouldn't impact on anyone's uh, privacy. Um, that only those patients that are not purchasing these products uh, uh, as they should are flagged to us as pharmacists and that we know that we have to, you know, we have to make a call then of, of what mm. the best thing to do for that patient is. Um, and and often some of these patients will need to be referred for treatment. And it's very difficult at present to, to it's very difficult to engage with that person yeah. okay, at the moment. Take someone, again, I'm putting myself in the position, wouldn't want to, um, so I come into you and you notice a pattern, Pat, Yes. That I'm in, and, and I'm looking for a box of salpidine yes. regularly enough. Yes. Are you allowed, or are you duty bound to say to me, PJ, you're taking rather a lot of that? You I, I think I'm duty bound, PJ. I'm duty bound. I, I, if I, I, as a pharmacist, we have to be always acting in the patient's best interests. So if I don't have that conversation with you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing my utmost for your health. So. So yes, I would I would feel I would be duty bound to to say something to you, and often, uh, you know, I might be met with denials. That's yes. the first line. It's denials. It's and it can get that. That's it's, that can be difficult then as a pharmacist to deal with because I'm I'm only going off my evidence yeah. in my pharmacy of you coming in on on a number of occasions, and that might not be enough evidence to say somebody has a problem. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why it's a can, can be a difficult conversation with that person, um, because unless they kind of admit to you they have a problem, 
it's very hard to go into like talking about treatments, talking about your options, talking about what can be done to get your life back in order. And I can go around the corner and buy it from somebody else next week, which doesn't solve any problem. So, which brings us to the nub of the discussion, and I've made the point a couple of times, we have some of the most liberal, liberal over-the-counter rules in the EU with regard to particularly salpidine and, and Nurofen Plus. They might, they're harder to get than paracetamol, but they're still available. Is it time, do you think, Pat, as a working pharmacist, do you think it's time to consider prescription only? Well, I think there's a review being undertaken by the Health Products Regulatory Authority, the HPRA. They're looking at the whole issue of both prescription and non-prescription coding, which is important. I think it should constantly under review. If you make a prescription only, you're going to deny a large number of people, the majority of people that use these products, access to them conveniently. And that's that's, that creates another problem then for, for, for that cohort. It's a big call. It's a, it's a big it, call. It's a very big call. I would think that would be... I, I certainly wouldn't be advocating for that uh, at present. Uh, I think they should look at all the evidence. Oh, the problem, PJ, is, again, back to the original point, we have very little evidence of people's purchasing habits because all the only evidence we have is we, we, the, the, the sales of these products are published you can access that data, the total sales. And that has gone up in the last few years substantially. And But but what we don't know is how many people are actually going from pharmacy to pharmacy. Yeah. That's what we're missing. We know it's happening, but we've no idea how much. Exactly. All right. I'm going to leave it there, Pat, for no reason other than time. But thank you for that, Pat Dalton from the North Main Street Pharmacy. We know people are doing this, touring around from pharmacy to pharmacy. We know they're, we know they're doing it. I've just no idea how many of them and how to prevent it if we need to do so. Thank you. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96 FM. Just in on the uh, text. Hi PJ, as you come over the flyover into Mahan Point. Traffic still at a standstill as far as you can see on that bridge. Glad I'm going into work from the other direction. Yeah, it's still out there. We had that accident a while ago. Bad enough. They're mopping it up, but still a lot of delays. On the traffic wardens, and I read you that piece that was posted on the notice board in Cove. And we did talk to the person who posted it. And they said, look, this isn't against the individual warden. It's just that should there be some discretion there. Sharon says, I was parked outside the Mercy. was getting out saw the warden writing into his book the details of a car that was parked opposite me. I ran over and I had a spare disc and I went to put it on the car. I was told, no, no, you can't do that. It was probably an inconvenience to tear out the page. Yeah, once the ticket is issued, Sharon, these days, it's done electronically and it's uh, there, it goes through. Once they've hit a certain button on that pad of theirs, it's gone through and there's absolutely nothing you, you can do about it. I remember coming out of here one day a while back now and coming down to where I parked my car and one of the lads was ticketing my car and I just arrived and I said, ah, 
S-H-I-T. I forgot to put a disc, or I forgot to update the disc on it. And he said, I can't stop it, man. I can't. He knew me. He said, I'm sorry, I can't stop it. It's gone through. So once it goes through, it's electronic now. They can't actually stop it. How and ever. 0818 96 96 96. Now, listening to us earlier on when we're talking about preparing for the leaving search in five weeks today, first paper in English at this point, uh, first paper in English will be well and truly underway. I think it's it'll be finished at 12, so people will have the back broken on it at least. And we were chatting about how you prepare, how you work through this next five weeks um, to the benefit of everybody in the house because as I think we'd all agree I think, I don't know whether we would or not but I think we'd all agree that it's not just the student is doing the exam it's, it, there's, a, there's a the whole family really is going through the, the Leaving Search experience and chatting to Michelle about it, uh, career guidance coach and all, all those things Alex Lenehan was was listening. Now, Alex, I'll talk about nextstepuni.com in a while. That is your business and, and a successful one and well done on it. But I want to go right back to the start because you you failed everything at junior cert level. And, and start there for me. Good morning. Good morning, Blue Jay. How are you getting on? Good, good. So go back to being a youngster. What was your, you had, to, you had, you had difficulty studying and difficulty yeah. preparing for exams? Definitely. So I'm a, I'm a student that went to a Desh primary school and a Desh secondary school. And I always kind of had the belief that I would never be able to do well. So I never really put in too much effort. So when I was in my junior cert, I, I really struggled. I struggled a lot when it came to learning. I struggled, struggled a lot when it came to looming exam stress. And the junior cert um, is a pretty big thing in a young person's life. And it's something I found really, really difficult. I wasn't sure how to approach my studies. I wasn't sure how to do well. I was getting all my results back through first year, second year, and third year. And I saw that I was getting C's, I was getting D's. I wasn't doing very well. And I just thought to myself, look, I'm in a desk school. I'm just probably not very smart. I don't really know what to do. I don't know how to approach my studies. I'm never really going to do well. And I was never really taught how to study either. I was being given the information. I was being told to kind of learn it off, regurgitate it, recite it. Mm. But I was never actually being told how to retain it over the long term. So when I came to my junior set, I looked at my papers and I just thought, okay, like I, I don't know any of this information because I hadn't retained it over the long term. I didn't really understand any of the information. I didn't know how to apply it in an exam context. Mm. And that's where I fell down. I also had the mindset where I thought, look, I'm not good enough. I won't ever be able to be good enough to get good results. There's students in better schools than me. I won't be able to do well. And I did really, really poorly in my junior year. That's, that's an unfortunate mindset to find yourself with at 13, 14 or 15. Yeah. This was 2017. That that was an unfortunate place to find yourself. Exactly, of course. And you know what? It's a, it's a mindset that a lot of students do struggle with. So we'll touch on the business later. But when it comes to the business, I give a free uh, session to a student in a desk school. Uh, for every session I give. And the reason I do that is because I've been in their shoes. I've been in the position that they're in. So I know how difficult it is. Well, well tell me about being there because, Alex, I had, you know, I, I, I went, I didn't go I didn't go to a desk school. I, yeah. I, in fact, there were no desk schools when I was going to school. But what what does it mean to be in a desk school? What does it mean to you to be in a desk school? Yeah, so I think it all comes down to the environment. So obviously, when it comes to being in a desk school, you're surrounded by students who are from very similar socioeconomic backgrounds to you. And as students, you just see um, other people's families and 
none of them really go down the route of higher education. If you're looking at students in the school, it's a very, very low rate of succession onto third level education. So you're looking at people in higher years than you and you're seeing that they're not going to college. So you say, well, if they're not going to college, I won't be able to go to college. You're looking at other people in your year and you're saying, okay, well, nobody in their family is going to college. Like, am I really able to go to college? And you basically create a mindset for yourself saying, because of my circumstances, I won't be able to go to college. And, and what were your teachers saying? If you ever asked that question of your teachers, am I going to be going to college? What would they say? Well, when it comes to being in a desk school, I think teachers try to be realistic and they say, well, you can go to college if you work hard, but there's other routes as well. So obviously in a desk school, a lot of students will go into LCA and, and do trades, and that's great. Yeah. But it's because they don't really feel like they can go down the other route of higher education because they don't really feel good enough. Okay. Okay, that's that. That's sad to hear that, Alex. Yeah. I have to say, exactly. And you know what? It's as I've seen when I've done my sessions is if I'm giving a session to a student in a school, they do have that mindset. They say to themselves, "Well, I've been given the information, but I'm not being taught how to learn it. I, my teachers are just teaching me the information. The people around me aren't doing very well. The students in my year aren't getting very high grades. So I feel like I won't be able to get very high grades." And it's a difficult situation to find yourself in. And a lot of students do, as I've seen in my own experiences. Now, I'm just listening to here, and you're clearly a, a bright lad. Well, what age are you now? You're uh, 20, 23, 24 now, are you? Um, I'm actually only 21. Only 21? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, there you are at 21. With a, you've built a successful business. I've seen one thing's for sure. You, you ain't dumb. You, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> so, so when you failed your, 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 your junior search, and yeah. you got that piece of paper... With all that in front of you, how did that sit? With, how did that sit with you? It was kind of just a moment of realization. I thought to myself, "Do I really want to feel this again? Do I want to have this feeling throughout my life where I feel like I'm not good enough and I haven't worked hard and I'm not going to do well?" And I thought to myself, "I don't want to feel this anymore." So when I saw my results, I thought, "You know what? I need to make a change," and that's exactly what I did. So I was going to skip Fortier, but I decided to do it. And in Fortier, what I decided to do was I read the peer review paper to learn how to study because I was a student that uh, didn't know how to study and pretty much everybody else in my year was in the same boat. And the majority of students are in that boat where they're not sure how to study. And I thought to myself, look, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I want to be able to make change. I want to be able to do well. I want to make my family proud. I want to be able to make myself proud. I want to be able to build a future for myself. Just because I'm in a desk school doesn't mean I won't be able to do well. I know I will be able to do well if I put in time and effort and I approach my studies the right way. And that's exactly why I went down the route of trying to read about the most effective ways to learn, understand and retain information. There's a very good point you've made there. Nobody taught you how to study. And, and I'd have to reflect that, Alex. Yeah. Nobody, I don't ever remember being taught how to study either. So you came home with books, exercises, texts, notes, whatever yeah. you had from school, homework. And there's a three-hour exam coming up in June. And if you love the subject, great. You kind of know what to do. Yeah. But in a subject that which you may be not so hot, but you know you need to get it, you're surrounded by all of this information. No one ever taught you how to filter it, how to go through it, and how to turn this bank of information into something you can recall. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely overwhelming. You're sitting there at, you know, 17, 18 years old, sitting the leaving search. You have a huge amount of information in front of you, you and you haven't been taught 
how to actually understand it, how to retain it, how to learn it. So a lot of students will just feel overwhelmed. They won't know where to start. And because of that, they won't start. And just to touch on what you were saying about if you find something uh, interesting and you're good at it, you'll put time and effort into it. And that's exactly the trap that a lot of students fall into. They'll put all the time and effort into one or two subjects and they'll completely neglect the rest of their subjects. And the reason is because when it comes to the rest of their subjects, what I've uh, seen with a lot of students is they won't do very well in subjects like history because there's so much information and they haven't been taught how to actually learn, understand and retain that information. So, what did you do for yourself after Junior Cert that subsequently became a business for you? Yeah, so what I decided to do was I said to myself, okay, what is the problem I'm experiencing? The problem is I have this information, but I don't know how to learn it. I don't know how to understand it. And when it comes to exam day, I haven't actually retained it. So what I did was I read a lot of peer-reviewed literature and scientific papers on the most effective ways to study. So I spent the whole of fourth year and half of fifth year reading these papers on uh, different experiments that were conducted on students in different schools. Um, and it all came into the most effective ways to study. And I suppose the crux of it is a lot of students are using ineffective study techniques like highlighting, rereading, underlining, rewriting. These are ineffective because when it comes to learning, we retain information better if we do effortful study techniques. So I think you know yourself, PJ, if you just sit down one evening for two hours and you write, you rewrite something out over and over again, you know, you might remember it for a day or two, but mm. in, a, in a week's time, you're not going to be able to remember that because you've just simply just regurgitated it over and over again. So what we want to do is we want to use effortful study techniques and effortful study techniques that we go through in the sessions are active recall, space repetition and interleaving. And what these uh, uh, basically techniques are, are techniques that introduce more effort into our studies. So instead of learning something now and coming back to it tomorrow, what you might do is instead of writing out a page of notes, we write out a page of questions for ourselves related to that topic. Then instead of coming back to it a day later, we might come back to it a week later. And when we come back to it, we won't look at anything to help us. We'll replicate the exam scenario. We'll try to pull all the information from memory, put it down onto the page, then compare our answers to what we had given the week before. And then we'll see, okay, where did I go wrong? Where can I improve? Then I might come back to it in about a week if I find it quite difficult. And I might come back to it in about a month if I find it quite easy. So when it comes to, uh, I suppose, the leading things I can do that now, they're about a month away. So you might shorten that time period. But when it comes down to it, what you want to be doing is using effective study techniques that are more effortful. Mm. So, and I'll continue with the business, which in a second, but I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed and sad that you ever thought of yourself as not being bright because yeah. you leave, you're leaving me in your dust, lad. <laughs> I'm telling you now, I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with you. <laughs> you know, um, so so you applied that then to your leaving cert. What you picked up during fourth year, you applied to your leaving cert. How did your leaving cert go for you? Yeah, my leaving cert ran really, really well. So I got actually the highest points my student has seen in like 10 years. Get away. How, um, how many did you get? I got like over 570 points. Get off the stage, lad. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was like a complete... It was completely opposite feeling that I felt when I was in junior cert, you know. When I was in junior cert, the feeling I felt was just disappointment and, and shame. And then when I was in leaving cert, it was just, it was comp- it was a huge confidence boost. It was, okay, maybe the stuff I'm doing actually does work. Maybe the stuff I'm doing actually is making me perform better. And it, it was. And that was a, an absolutely amazing feeling to feel. And I thought, well, if I can feel this feeling, I want other students to feel this feeling. Um, so what so you, I, get, you I, get your envelope from yeah. your principal two years after another envelope from your principal 
Yeah. And you open it off and you go, oh, wow. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. And I mean, it was actually a, a very weird experience. Like, I was called into the school and I was actually doing interviews with, like, the Echo and, you know, Red FM and 96 FM and stuff like that, um, talking about my experience because it was such, like, an unknown scenario that it seemed in a desk could do so well, especially when that hadn't been the case for so many years. So having taught yourself how to study and retain and perform, then you turned it into a business. Yeah, exactly. So my idea behind the business was, look, the problem is students don't actually know how to learn information. They don't know how to retain it or understand it. And I've built myself a system around how to actually do this. And it's proven to be effective because I went from basically failing my whole junior year to getting the highest points my school had seen in over 10 years. So I thought, okay, if I can build a session on this, and building the session took my first two whole two years of college to actually build. But eventually when I did build it, I said, we're offering it to students and the feedback I've been given is absolutely unbelievable. I have a lot of testimonials uh, on the website, Next Step Uni, if you want to look. Um, but it's students basically saying, I wish I had found this sooner. I wish um, I was taught this in school. And when I'm doing sessions with students, they say the exact same thing. And I, when it comes to learning, it's a universal thing. So I've actually given sessions from students ranging from first year of secondary school to mature students. Just last week, I gave a, student, uh, a session to a student that was um, 65. She was a carer for her dad. And then when her dad died, she went back into education. But she felt like she bit off more than she could chew. And she wasn't really sure how to approach her studies, how to actually understand and retain information. And she's studying pharmacy. So I went back and I gave her a session. So it's it's a huge wide array of students that I give the session to. Wow. This is astonishing. Is it a website or an app or do you Zoom with people or what do you do? Yeah. So the website is called nextstepuni.com. Mm. And basically what you can do is there's two different ways to go about it. You can either book an online one-to-one session and they're really affordable. And for every session we give, we actually give a free session to a desk school, uh, a student in desk school. So we work with Aaron Wolf, the principal of Dare Park. Oh, no, Aaron, well, yeah. Yeah, we, we, I worked with Aaron because obviously I went to Dare Park and we just try to help out those students and we're actually in talks of me going in and giving a talk to the students as a group as well. But my own experience um, before they sit their juniors at the leave there to maybe give them that boost in confidence. We also offer learning guides and these learning guys are much cheaper. So the sessions come in at around 30, 40 euro. And then um, when it comes to learning guys, they're only about a tenner. And basically the learning guys are what accompany the sessions. So if you want a bit more of an in-detail, uh, in-depth look, you can do a one-to-one session. We work with the students directly. Um, and you know that's basically how we work it right now. Um, we're in, in the works of building a growth mindset session for students to boost their confidence and instill that mindset that they can do well. This is this is amazing stuff, amazing stuff. So, come back to the five weeks today, Alex, uh, yeah. before I let you go. And for people who are listening, or for parents who are listening, and we will be podcasting this interview so people can listen to it maybe after school, in between study breaks. For yeah. people who today are five weeks out and they're there with their head in their hands, going, "I haven't a prayer." What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, look, just because you're five five weeks out, does not mean hope is lost. Not at all. Hope is never lost. And you will be able to do well if you just apply yourself in these five weeks. Just think about it in a way where you say, look, these five weeks, if I put in the time and effort, could set me up for the rest of my life. It could get me what I want. And you could get the same feeling that I got when I was in the universe, where you feel proud of yourself 
and you feel like you can actually do really well in life. And what you want to do is you just want to build yourself a plan and you want to base your plan around saying, look, I'm going to focus on the subject that I'm not doing super well in right now because PJ, it's really easy or it's much easier to go from 40% to 70% than it is to go from 80% to 90%. And you can get a lot more points going yeah, from 40 true. to 70 that's than true. 80 to 90. That's true. So we want to be identifying our weak points. If we're doing really poorly in certain subjects and we are planning on counting them in our leaving search, we want to really focus on bringing those subjects up to level of our other subjects. The students that get all H3s is doing much better and getting much more points than the student that gets two H1s and all H, uh, the rest H5s. So it's just important to keep in mind that when it comes to learning and when it comes to studying for leaving search, focus on those subjects that you feel like you're not doing super well in. Look at subjects you are doing well in, pick out your weak points that you could fall down in in an exam scenario and focus on working on improving them. You can improve them by using things like active recall data, repetition, like I talked about, if you would like to obviously get a more in-detail look between now and then, you can book a session through the website. Okay. Um, we also offer exam skills and stress management sessions, and that's for helping students when it comes to exam time to actually uh, try to get rid of that exam stress. Because obviously, I know myself when I was in leaving first, my mental health suffered quite a lot because I always put this pressure on myself. I know that looming exam stress uh, and the exams were coming, and I really struggled with that. So we offer the exam skills and stress management sessions to really just help get rid of that fear of the unknown okay. when it comes into going into an exam scenario and helping students manage their stress during that really okay. uh, intense exam week. Well, if anyone wants to look at it, it's nextstepuni.com. Alex, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I'm, I'm wondering when you will turn your first million or whether you, <laughs> will, whether you will be Minister for Education because okay. you, have, you have brightened up my day with your insight and thank you. Thank you, PJ. It's been a really nice conversation. It's been great talking to you. What a fantastic young man. Alex Lenehan, 0818 96 96 96. His website. Happy to plug it for him all day long. It's called nextstepuni.com. Cork's 96FM is the official media partner of Cove Ramblers FC. This Friday night, Cove Ramblers take on Finn Harps at St. Coleman's Park. Kickoff is 7.45pm. The street fleet will be there supporting the team. So bring the family for a great night of football and fun. For tickets, see coveramblers.ie. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. I'm blown away by that conversation with uh, young Alex. He was listening to us earlier talking about the uh, leaving cert and uh, rang us up and said, I want to talk about my project here and listen to it. Fantastic. We'll podcast extra that uh, after the show. 0818 96 96 96. Have you ever done the Camino? Do you know anybody who has done the Camino? Would you like to try doing the Camino, the Camino de Santiago de Compostela is this big long walk along across Spain and Portugal to come to Santiago de Compostela at the end. And people have been doing it for centuries, but it's become a thing in, say, the last 10, 20 years. And people do sections of it, and they do the end of it, and they do the start of it, and they go back to it again, and they do it with friends, and do it, do it with family, and do it, do it for reasons best known to themselves, and do it for charity, and do it for religion. And so for some people, it's a pilgrimage. Some people, it's just uh, it's just another holiday with a different kind of a theme to it. Katie Sloan is just back from uh, the Camino. Uh, 
Katie from Peach Vintage Clothing. Um, and just, I think you just decided to up and go, Katie. I've often thought about it, but I'm thinking, nah, sure, I'd never be able for that. Traipsing across Spain in the sun. I, I, I'd rather sit by a pool and, and sup beer. I don't even think I'd be able for it. Morning. Morning. How are you, PJ? Firstly, you'd definitely be able. Once you're fit and able, you'd definitely be able to walk it. Um, I would be physically fit, but um, I, I also wouldn't be a huge walker. Um, and I used to jog a lot before, but that's years ago. Um, but I just thought I, I, I knew a lot of people that had done it before. So I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna chance my arm was <laughs> kind of the best way of describing it. You hear of loads of people doing the end of it, and some people do the start of it, and some people do the middle of it. Yeah, and I think the big thing as well is that people go they they finish in Santiago and they get their pass they they get their um you get a certificate. Yeah, but I'm gonna definitely have to go back simply because. I never got the certificate. I, t- I just forgot it. So I had gotten my little passport stamped. You, you yeah. get a little passport at the beginning and every place that you might stop for coffee or where you're staying, everybody has a place where you we just put a little stamp on your passport. Yeah. And it's just a record of where you've been and to prove basically that you've done it. But of course, I was getting on the flight home and there was a lady in front of me said, oh, did you get your certificate? And I said, oh, no. You'll just have to go back and do it again. What was the yeah, ins- yeah. what was the inspiration? I'm not so sure inspiration, but um, I uh, lost my dear dog in December, okay. um, and I had him Freddie for 13 years, um, so he was very much a family member. And um, we, I live in a beautiful part of the country. I'm down in Inch Beach, and I suppose getting up every day and going for a walk with my dog was one of the best things I could do. Um, and when he passed away in December, I did no walking. So I didn't, I, every time I, I I went to try and do it, even though I'd been getting up and going for work to work and everything and everything was normal. I just couldn't, it was like a block. Mm. So, um, it was just, I was sitting at home one, one evening a few weeks ago and I just said to my boyfriend, I am going to walk in the Camino. And he was like, okay. <laughs> he just said, okay. Well, he's he's a very understanding person. He's a great support. So, like, I'm going to walk the Camino. That's like saying I'm going down to Centre for eggs. You know, <laughs> he knows me well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What yeah. what kind of a dog was Freddie? Uh, he was he was a mixed breed Jack Russell and a Westie. I, I got him from um, uh, my old boss Garrett thirteen years ago. I work with 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 horses part time, so um, he was born above in a, a farm in Bartley, <laughs> and. Uh, they weren't the prettiest pups mm. ever. There was a few of them there. And uh, my boss at the time, he said, oh God, who's going to take these pups? They're just not, not the prettiest things. And I was like, I'll definitely take one anyway. And uh, they all got loving homes. And Freddie came to me for 13 years. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I've been there. I've done that. I, I've, I've lost a dog that I got at nine weeks old at, at nearly 13. So so I know I know how it feels. I know how it feels. And so many people know how it feels. You know, I mean, I've been, I was documented on, on social media, the, the trip I took. And, um, you know, people people understood, you know, they, they got it. So many people had just, you know, mentioned it to me that, you know, they felt the same about the loss of the pet. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Talk to me about day to day on on the Camino. You, so you did one hundred and twenty five kilometers. Yeah. Are there specific start and finish points? Is there a specific? There, well, move? for the last, yeah. So I just started just outside Saria. Um, so I think Saria itself is. I think they say it's one hundred and sixteen kilometers from there to Santiago. I just started a little bit outside that. Um, that that it, it started at one two five. Um, and I, along the, the trip, because it was April, um, they say it's quieter time of year. So I very much just walked. And when I got when I got to a destination, I booked there and then with booking.com. Um, and I stayed in hostels and a couple of nights I, I stayed in, in hotels. Um, but I mean, it, it was easy peasy to be able to book a room or, or um, a bed in a dorm for the night. There was so much availability. Yeah. And you went on your own. I went on my own. Yeah, yeah. I just said I just needed a a, a break from reality for for six or seven days. Um, yeah, and just a break from work. And yeah, yeah. I went on my own. You meet people along the way. You meet a, a wide variety of people along the way. What kind of people did you meet? Yeah, like for the first day when I when I started walking the first day and when I left, and I was carrying my bag. Now you don't have to carry your bag. They actually have a, a service where they bring it from from where you're staying to the next point, which is fantastic. And I think they only charge like four or five hour euro for your bag to move. So you don't actually have to carry it. But I was happy to carry my rucksack because it wasn't that heavy and um, was happy to have all my gear with me. But for the first two hours, I met nobody. <laughs> and I was like, what? All, all I was thinking is, what have I done? My God almighty. I'm, I'm, am, I on the, am I in the right place? <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Yeah, am I on the wrong route? But it's very clearly marked. It's so safe. There's yellow um, arrows everywhere to direct you to the route. Like, but but when you're leaving Saria, the actual the town, the first point, it is quite difficult to navigate your way out of the town. But once you're out of the town, once you get to the church and leave the church, mm. you're on your you're on your route, and there's no there's no getting lost or, or going in the wrong direction. But for the first two hours, I, I was a little bit, oh my God, what have I done? But for the, the very first people that I met, would you believe they were Irish people? There was a, a, an older man, he was in his 70s from Westmead, and his son who had been living in Spain, and the two of them obviously decided to do the Camino together. But like I was having very quick, like minute conversations with people because I was kind of, I was quite happy to just be in my own space for the for the week and, and um, not, do too much interacting with people. I was I was quite happy to do that, but people were so friendly, and they did mention to me, all right, that I I I'd want to to pace myself, so, <laughs> but I've never been <laughs> never been able to do that. But uh, but yeah, it, it, people were lovely. Yeah. And and then you book the place to stay as you go along, or do you book them all before you start? You, you can absolutely book, like for, apparently uh, from what people have been speaking to me since I came home that have done it, like the, it's not gone, like none of the swimming pools or anything were open. The weather is quite like Ireland over there. It was a, raining for a couple of days. So there was a lot of availability simply because there's not that many people on the Camino this time of year. And mm. um, so it was very, very easy to book this time of year but I think my mum went in September and I know a few people that are going in September that have spoken to me and they said that they've actually booked their accommodation in advance um, some were going with groups or some of them um, some of them were doing with two or three friends and they said they, they just just to be safe because it's a busy time of year 
you went horse riding at one point, didn't you? I know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of connection between horses and the Camino, but you you went horse riding. I actually didn't go horse riding, right? I I I'd made a, I a very small Spanish, and I in, instead of asking, instead of saying to the guy that owned the horse, I work with horses. I asked him, could I work with his horse? Okay. So he was like, you have to get up on the horse. And I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I, I, I don't need, it's like a busman's holiday. Didn't need to get on the horse. So, but oh. um, they were so nice, like, and they wanted to take pictures of me. So they took my phone. And so I was just, I was just well, you just met this, you met this guy you're chatting about. Oh, I, and I work with horses. He goes, oh, you want to work on the horse? Yeah. That, that, that reminds me, <laughs> that reminds me, Katie, of a time. And I could tell you now, but to take all day. I almost, yeah. almost bought a camel in Egypt. <laughs> it's a true story. Well, I definitely didn't buy this horse. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, but it it and you like, like you said, you meet all sorts of people, and you found was there a pub all that you sorts. found? Yeah, yeah, that's actually funny. the 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 pub was called so it was it had Irish bar written like an arrow pointing to the Irish. So I said I'd, I'd head down. I think it was in Medina, which was my third or fourth stop, which was a beautiful little town. And I saw this arrow saying Irish bar. So I said, I'll head down and, and have a look. As you and, do. Uh, as you do, of course. And all I, all that was written on the side of it was um, Big Ben Irish bar. But it was closed. It was actually closed because of the middle, you know, the way Spain, um, they, 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 do, they do the siesta. siesta during the day. So it was closed. I couldn't go in to ask them. Big Ben? What was the story? Big Ben Irish bar. Yeah. What did you get out of it? Personally, a big adventure, fun by the sounds of things. But what else did you get out of it? Um, I got like I got peace for the week, and just uh, like the to be able to sit with emotion, um, and to be vulnerable, you know, and to be able to, I suppose, be sad. You know, it's okay to be to be sad. Grief is a very strange thing. Um, and I suppose grief of a pet is a, is a is an unusual one as well. Now, I, I know people are, you know, some people say, oh, some people don't get it. But I haven't met anybody that hasn't understood what I've, you know, what I've gone through, you know, because um, so many people have to deal with that grief. But it was just, I suppose, a week of just, you know, of, of reminding myself that it's OK to be sad for the loss of a pet. Mm. Some people might say, Katie, and I've always said this, if anyone ever says to you, sure, it was only a dog, they've never had a dog. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's I what mean, I would say. We've, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've, um, I grew not grow up with animals. Um, we're, we're a family of animal lovers. You know, we've always, we just recently adopted a cat, yeah. <laughs> an old age pensioner cat. Oh, but um, and if I had my time over, actually, um, I like because my mum did it for the guide dogs years ago, the Camino, and I because it was so rushed, the actual because I always do that, I, I I do everything's last minute, and I should have um I should have fundraised a little bit for um Monster Last and Found because that's where we got our little cat mushroom, and um we we adopted them in February mm-hmm. and uh, they've been they're just wonderful people and I did um, put up a link while I was doing the walk for Monster Last and Found because they're incredible people mm-hmm. what they do for animals um so I think if I am I I, I hope that I'll be able to go back next year and um, maybe do the Portuguese section of it okay um and I'll I'll 
definitely plan ahead and, and do and raise some funds for the Munster Last and Found. Mushroom. Mushroom the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. We renamed him. He did have another name. We won't mention it, but <laughs> we, had to, we had to rename him. Go on. Is so, it broadcastable? Yeah, so we caught... No. It's not. <laughs> I know it is. I'm only joking. How do I say this now? It was the name of a previous boss, actually. <laughs> so I had to change the name. Oh, well, we leave it at that. So we wouldn't want to be impugning yeah. anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're, you're, you're going back. Well, the, I'd love to be able to go back next year, maybe, and and, and do it again, and um, do another section of it because there's so many walks there, and it was, it was absolutely stunning. I can't recommend it highly enough for people, especially if you just need time to to be by yourself. Or, I mean, if you're going with a group, obviously that's also wonderful. But it's definitely such a safe place to go if you just want to do a little bit of travelling and alone time by yourself. Well done to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. People can see your adventure on your uh, Peach Vintage Clothing Instagram. Oh, they can. Yeah, well, it's back to normality now. It's horses and, and vintage clothes. but <laughs> And Mushroom the Cat gets um, gets put up there quite often as well. But yeah, there'll be plenty more adventures anyway. Good luck for the future, Katie. Thank you. Thank you very much, PJ. Lovely talking to you. <laughs> Lovely talking to you. Mushroom the Cat. What a name. Wasn't it? No, the the missus actually has this. Always says she'd love to to do the the, the Camino. I, I think I'd be too lazy to do the Camino. But I used to say then I couldn't envisage walking in the country for a week, praying, because that's what I kind of think a lot of people do. But it's clearly from Katie. It's not. She's great fun. She's great crack. I, I don't think I'd be. Able, I don't know. The missus would love to do it. She'd be gone tomorrow. My missus will be gone tomorrow to the Camino, if she thought she could. 0818 96 96 96. Back to letting people drive that little bit younger. Uh, 16. Uh, we talked about it earlier on. The EU Commission is proposing it, and safety experts are saying no. And there's kind of divided views on it. Uh, and the point is made that it's so hard for a young person to get driving these days, that maybe if you let them drive younger and learn younger and learn through school and learn more practical ways, that it might take away all the backlog. And then driving instructors say, look, all the system is there at the moment. It's all there. Just make it work properly. It's a kind of a wide debate. I completely sympathise with the waiting list problems, says this message. Having gone through that process myself and waited months for my test. This is from Katrina in Glasheen. But there's environmental issues too with encouraging people to drive so young. We should be funding better public transport access instead of encouraging them to drive. And also not everyone can afford to drive. Insurance costs, buying a vehicle, etc. etc. That kind of ties in, Katrina, with that front page story on the examiner today by this academic in Dublin who reckons that we should get SUVs and bigger cars off the road some people say tax them off the road so are you it's, 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 a, it's a talking point uh, are we wrong to be from an environmental point of view from a climate sustainability all that thing kind point of view are we wrong to be encouraging young people to drive should we be saying to them 
No, don't drive. Don't drive. Save the planet. Don't drive. Save the planet. Take a bus or ride a bike or do some... It's, it's, it's one we could explore. 0818 96 96 96. Coming up, the man who has 107 different videos of Roy Keane that he's made himself. That's next. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818-969696. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96 FM. Padraig says, if anybody... Oh, this is about um, Katie and the dog, Freddie. Um, if anybody ever told me, sure, it's only a dog, they'd be told, sure, you're only a human being. That would change their tune, says Padraig. Uh, Shiona says, PJ, I'd love to do this Camino walk. I'm battling endometrial cancer at the moment sorry to hear that and would love to ride it out and walk the Camino huge animal lover too they're the best huggers ain't they just 0818 96 96 96 now Paddy Cannon I think you discovered Roy Keane when you were away in America someone wrote to you or contacted you and told you about him and you were only a teenager yourself morning Good morning, PJ. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much for having me on. We had uh, the story with that was I was over in America uh, in a Danish scholarship back in 1990, and that was prior to mobile phones and internet and uh, messaging instantly. So I used to rely on letters coming every three or four weeks, and my older brother, yeah. James, was a great man for following all different types of sports. So I remember opening in September 1990, in a little town in Kentucky called Murray, my post box and reading down through the normal family news and stuff and then rushing to the sports part of that letter and down to the bottom of the letter was a 19-year-old from Mayfield made his debut in Anfield and I was just absolutely blown away and never heard of him uh, barred from local reports. Um, when he was with the Kennedy Cup teams back in 86 but I didn't know he'd gone over I didn't know that uh, mm. the debut was imminent so just incredible and from that day forward basically I've been following him like most most people that love yeah. sport and love soccer When did you get to meet him first? Or I've never met him no, You've I've never, never met, him. met him? No, no, no never met him seen him out when uh, when uh, things started to take off from in Forest for sure like a lot of people I remember the first car he came back with it was black, black Orion, I think, and uh, he was the same age as me. I'm fifty one, and he was enjoying the, the the success and the the adulation. He was getting a few bob, and I remember it coming back to Cork, seeing him around because a lot of my friends played with my local club, Wilton United, and they'd have known him through the soccer circles. So I might have seen that. I was watching him on the TV, the FA Cup run, obviously, to ninety one, and just going on from. Uh, just success to success. So never met him, and never spoke to him. But like everybody wow. else, I've been I've been following him. Wow! And you've collected this huge library of stuff, and now you're making your own video documentaries, almost in chronological order. Yeah, yeah, and I, that was a deliberate thing, PJ, because it would be very easy for me to 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 jump on the the, the controversial side and and go. Focusing on Saipan or focusing on Alfie Halland and all the, the 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 negative stuff that takes away from the incredible footballing story and the incredible footballer that Roy Keane was. Mm. So I started basically right at the start, the Rockmount days, and I bring it right up through to the Kennedy Cup days, the move to Cove, the opportunity with the youth game, 
and uh, the trial over to the forest and right all the way up to two thousand. Where did you get all the footage? Uh, just hard work, DJ. Just sitting down doing the research, and I had the uh, hundred eight, seven, eight videos now at this stage. But if you go into my playlist section, you'll see that there's another thirty sections inside there. And literally from every game he played, Rockmount up until the Celtic. Through the Ireland phases, the youths, the under-21, the seniors, everything is chron- chronologically ordered. Mm-hmm. Everything is the full statistics. So if anybody's into the stats, that's the place to go to check that. He's an enigma. I, must, I, I assume you saw the, the Tommy Tiernan interview. And I, I, I never saw two men work so hard. Tommy to get something out oh. of him and Roy <laughs> to give nothing. And the two of them realised where they were both going. A wonderful interview. Yeah, but the yeah. man is an enigma. What do you make of him, Paddy? I mean, yeah, he's I mean, mass it, appeal. Everybody loves him. Yeah, it's revealing that interview. And in the, the one take that I took from it, I think Roy really, to, in, in my opinion, is most comfortable talking about football. Other mm. stuff, I think you'll see the reserve, the shy side of him. And maybe there was a little bit of that. Um, he, he's a fantastic speaker, but if you if you want to engage, King, you need to go at him with football, 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 yeah. football. And I think you'll see the best and best that side. I don't think he likes the the um, the, the, the general talks here about his private life. Now he's very guarded about that. And understandably so. Yeah. And we all know the stories about uh, approaching him at the wrong time for a selfie or an autograph. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he doesn't doesn't particularly. Um, I don't think he was ever comfortable with the with the fact that his, his privacy was gone. But that's yeah. the price that he knew he was going to have to pay yeah. when he was going into professional work. Yeah. Working with Gary Neville has brought him a whole new lease of life in terms of getting out there and 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 sort of being known to the kids. And he's he's got a, like a whole there's a whole second phase of Roy now, isn't there? There is, and, and and that's great to see that side coming out. I mean, he's 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 got an incredible intellect, and and he's the one-liners that will put you in stitches for for years. Mm. I mean, some some of the more famous ones: the prawn sandwich, common, prepare, prepare, prepare to fail. Yeah, uh, <laughs> don't thank the postman. You know, like where where he pulls them from, how he gets them. <laughs> I don't know, but when he he made them, the World Cup more entertaining for me. Put it that way. Yeah, I mean, isn't don't don't you want to? No matter who you're talking, they're conversing with. You want to know what they're thinking, what their what their real opinion on on, on things are. And he calls a spade a spade. That's not for everybody, but for football people, if you simplify it, a guy's either working hard, he's not working hard. You want to you want to get that from Roy Keane, and that's that's gold dust for for people in the television game, isn't it? We'll share the links so we can you can find your videos. You want. You would like to interview him? Ah, sure, for sure. I mean, it is the Roy Keane story. It's not going to be much of a story if uh, I don't get to talk to him. But whether that happens, PJ, or not, I'm going to keep soldiering on. I hope if he does get word of it that he sees that I deliberately focused in on the football. Do you know what, Petty? I'm, I'm surprised that he isn't aware that you've got all these. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that if, if, if and when he does become aware of that, PJ, that he'll enjoy that, going going back, you know, right to the start and following through on some of the footage. I mean, there's no no possible way he's going to remember everything, all the interviews, all the places he visited, all the games he played. So, I mean, that, that, that'd be great for Ryan and his family, you know. And you know, our, our Trevor here from The Score and, of course, international football commentator is Trevor. He would surely have some way of making sure that Roy got to see some of your videos. Because I think it's... Cr- I'm amazed you've never met him. Yeah, someone is here. The, the comment uh, about Andy Robertson and the, and the referee. Ah, the baby, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
He's, Absolute he, comic he, timing. If he okay. ever went into stand up, he'd pack he'd 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 pack theatres. No, but he did he did that cameo role PJ, didn't he, with the young offenders and I mean it was That's a perfect right. Perfect, perfect role from that time, you know. <laughs> he was asking for a bag of chips in the window and he got his answer. And, that's right, know. that's right. Listen, yeah. it wouldn't be, I'd love to be able to talk to you again in, in a, a few months or a year's time and you had actually met. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love it. that opportunity came around for sure. And they said, I'll be just focusing on the football. And, and, and we'll, share, we'll share everything that, that you have out there so people can have a look at what you've done. Paddy, fascinating conversation. And thank you very much. And we will talk again. It would be great to see Paddy get the opportunity to, to interview Roy uh, after amassing all that knowledge and all those videos. All right, that's it. Radiothon happens in... 20 what? I have to tell you now because I keep doing this all the time. Radiothon is now only 21 days away. So you need to organise your fundraiser. Get on to us for a fundraising pack to 96vm.ie. We'll sort everything out. Do a coffee break, do a jersey day, do a change collector box, do anything you want. We're hot and heavy in preparation now for the Giving for Living Radiothon, May 25th to 27th only on Cork's 96FM. It'll be upon us before we know it. That's it. Programme edited by Imro Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thank you for joining the conversation in whatever way you did. And we'll talk to you tomorrow just after nine. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96FM.ie This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call-